You must remember this A kiss is just a kiss A sigh is just a sigh The fundamental things apply As time goes by And when two lovers woo They still say I love you On that you can rely No matter what the future brings As time goes by Hello everybody and welcome to another Redux edition of Directors Club I'm your host Jim Laskowski and with me today oh, are two incredible cinephiles that host their own podcast available on some network that I've never heard of called The Now Playing Network. First and foremost, he is a returning champion, been on a couple of times, and I've had the pleasure of first meeting him at a book event for his entry in Yuletide Horror, and I happily heard him discuss Eyes Wide Shut. Chicago film critic Dave Canfield is back. Thank you very much, Jim. Glad to be back. Oh, I'm glad you're back. This is great. Uh, I know we were initially talking about another director, somebody who's making more recent films, but I just had this idea that, especially since you were hosting a Casablanca event, uh, a screening of it, and then, unfortunately, we lost a dear film critic friend of ours that we'll pay tribute to by doing this episode in general. I thought it, was, I thought it, f- it felt right. It just felt right to do this. So, um, And across from Dave, in the red trunks, is his dear friend, and co-host of the Mind Frames podcast. He's, of course, another passionate enthusiast of film, Michael Cockerill. Oh, thank you. Thank you. How do you know what I'm wearing? You can see below the desk. Yes. <laughs> I uh, I always, I, people don't know this, but uh, while they're not at home, before we start recording, I go in and install a little camera in their room. Oh. Uh we yeah. could have just used my own. We could have just used my OnlyFans camera, but you know, well, got to tell me ahead of time. Uh, yeah, so we can I know, set up but... for tips and stuff. <laughs> oh boy, who, who will be the first Chicago critic to get an OnlyFans? <laughs> you know what? I Dave, wouldn't. Dave Canfield. <laughs> I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't shut out the possibility that there is a Chicago critic out there with an OnlyFans. Hmm. I don't necessarily judge, you know. Will people tip for um, film criticism? You never know. I don't know. And, and 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 what do you what what kind of films do you cover on your OnlyFans if you're a film critic? Mm. The porn the porn versions of everything, I guess. Yeah, Men in Black, Women. I know that. Pacablica. Yeah, not that I know. Not that I know. Or I've seen any of these titles that I'm. No, no. I've never seen Interview with a Vibrator, you know, <laughs> but um, I certainly would be open to, yeah, OnlyFans.com <laughs> slash MindFrames. Oh, I just got five film titles I cannot say on our podcast, so yeah. I'm going to dismiss my brain for a second. Go ahead. Yeah, that can happen here. It can happen. There's usually digressions, as there are on oh, your mercy. wonderful show. The one-liners flow. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they turn into two-liners or three-liners. You just never know. This is so exciting since it's been a while since all of us uh, have sat down 
to talk together. I remember having a wonderful discussion about uh, one of my favorite directors, Kelly Reichart, uh, or Reichart. Mm. I still don't know. I should find that out. I should hear it pronounced to know for sure. But um, we, 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 uh, we had a very moving conversation with First Cow. And uh, if you want, if you want me back for her latest, I don't, I don't know when it's opening. Like I figured that was going to be one, one of those end of year titles that would pop up. What, what's her latest one again? It's called Showing Up with Michelle Williams. Surprise! Wow. Yeah, I may have seen something for that, but I'm, I, I, that, that this may be the first time hearing of it. I don't know if it's going to be one of those, you know, surprise awards contenders or not. If they're just going to wait till next year, but they're doing <sighs> that with a few things. The Sun. Uh, with Hugh Jackman is now been pushed hmm. into January, which I thought was an odd choice, given how uh, strong it was. Oh, you saw it? No, it just looks strong. Oh, when you oh, look yeah, at the material, I've... you go, huh, I, I, I think this could poss- possibly be awards worthy, be very interesting. For sure. Um, I don't know if I've heard, I've heard good things about performances, maybe not the film. I don't know. It's one of those mm-hmm. cases where... Uh, we, I just, I don't know what, I don't know what films count for what year anymore. <laughs> sometimes I know like, and Portrait really of a Lady on the Fire was the first one I remember going, okay, what year is this for? <laughs> yeah. Cause I saw it the year before and people were putting on their lists and then everybody was putting on their list for the following year. So I don't know. I don't know what's yeah, going on. That was an odd, that was an odd transition. Yeah. I think I feel like we're still doing that here and there. Oh yeah, and I really wanted to uh, get this episode out before award season because, as you know, around post Thanksgiving we kind of get overwhelmed in the best way possible. Yeah. Um, but for today, it is kind of a bittersweet gathering where we're here in memory. Uh, I mean, this is there's been a number of tributes, and I know there's still going to continue to be a number of tributes to our dear friend and colleague, Mister Sergio Mims. And one of Sergio's favorite directors was indeed Michael Curtiz. Uh, so I thought we'd all have, uh, you know, a, a, a discussion of our own on a couple of Michael Curtiz films in particular. Of course, the classic Casablanca and a, a, another favorite of mine that became a favorite when I talked with Sergio for the first episode was, which geez, six years ago, which is crazy. Um, but I discovered a film called The Breaking Point. And I wanted to sort of highlight with both of you how special that film is for sure. I encourage everyone to go back and listen to the other Curtiz episode because you get both Patrick and Sergio. But I don't know. I really like doing these Redux episodes because we get two completely different perspectives and and takes uh, on a particular filmmaker. So I think this is exciting even if people have heard, uh, you know, Sergio's voice in... uh, Well, and it's something that it, it's something to keep your viewers or I'm sorry, your listeners in mind of, because let's face it, you know, what um, people said about Michael Curtiz 10 years ago might not be what people highlight, you know, 10 years later. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. And I think that, you know, not only does a opinion change or an, an assessment of work changes, but um, just the things that seem more timely. Uh, about people's work changes and it's uh it's not like you know anybody's gonna offer the last word on 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 uh, on anything um kind of the mark of a good critic is trying not to do that i think but uh i'm a, i'm really excited to to jaw about uh this guy he's uh 
I've got five Michael Curtiz films that I absolutely adore. And um, uh, I can't wait for us to get started. Before we do that, though, it's time for what we watched recently. Yes. Um, before we launch into the Michael Curtiz discussion briefly, I do want to ask each of you if you've seen something recently that isn't Michael Curtiz related that you want to highlight. Honestly, I want to hear all about RRR, and I've yet oh. to see it, and I am truly saddened I could not attend that screening that it seemed like everybody on the planet went to at the Music Box. Um, but either of you, I mean, if... You know, Michael, you want to share your thoughts, of course, because you saw it as well. I'm I'm very curious to know more about this because I've only heard bits and pieces about it, especially the tiger fight. That's that's what I always keep seeing pop up in terms of the images. So I will see it soon before the end of the year without question. What to say about RRR? I know Dave's going to love it and I like it a lot, too. So I'll go first. (laughs) <laughs> supersede him <laughs> throw it throws a wet blanket out for it i mean it's a lot of fun especially if you see it in a crowd of really enthusiastic supporters you know um i as 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 anyone will know you know they have multiple centers of film in uh india and this is a film in the telugu language you know from south india uh like the i forget that there's like uttar pradesh and there's another state where they speak that language and so these are stars and a director who are very well known in that people grew up with them. The person sitting next to me said, I grew up watching his movies. I can't believe I'm here seeing him. Uh, so you get a very uh, visceral and raw reaction from the the crowd. Uh, mm. And I think that seeing it outside of that environment might drain some of the magic. So if you can go see it. Maybe like on a Friday night, if, if you can find a screening, I don't know. AMC sometimes does the screening of these um, Hindi, Telugu, uh, Bengali, sometimes movies. If you can find one of those and it's pretty full of people who speak that language, that might be the best way to reproduce that magic. Um, and that magic kind of lets you overlook the, you know, it's a, it's kind of like a soap opera. It's got a lot of CGI. <laughs> Um, they can't use real raw live animals in um, untamed wild animals, I should say, in India. So it's got a lot of CGI going on. It's epic. It's long. It's a lot of fun. Um, it's, you know, it's got elements of like Indian nationalism and Hindu nationalism, maybe. Uh, so it's a very complicated movie that's about the past, but of this time and kind of says a lot about modern India, but mostly for fun. Um, if you can get to it in, in an environment where people are going to be going to have that deep connection I talked about, uh, that would be my recommendation. If you watch it at home on Netflix, I think a lot of that is going to be robbed. Yeah. Well, this is, this is definitely one of those cases where I'm hoping because it's getting so much acclaim and awards consideration, or at least, you know, making a lot of year end lists, I, I would hope that, yeah, maybe they'll, they will give it a wider release and make it more accessible for everybody. Cause 
I'd be down to see this in a theater as opposed to Netflix. And maybe that's why I was like putting it off because I hear it's this epic and I'm like, well, I'm sorry I missed the music box screening, but I'm hoping there's going to be more. Dave, what did you think of RRR? Well, number one, uh, I was super excited that Mike got to go with me. Mm. Um, I have a personal connection to the film in that um, a friend of mine, Josh Hurtado, has been very instrumental in trumpeting it. He's uh, one of the uh, um, people out at Screen Anarchy, a colleague of mine, and he specializes in Indian film. In fact, he just launched his own distribution company, and uh, I am guessing he's going to be working hard to get more Indian film over to the United States. And he he could not be more excited about this film. He's been traveling around with the director um, and uh, his own family to various screenings around uh, around the, uh, the, the United States, watching audiences just erupt and go crazy. And, you know, what we mean when we say that is at our screening, people booed the villains, they uh, cheered the heroes, they clapped during the um, uh, to the beat of of, of different songs, um, and uh, they just could not have been more involved in the film. Um, and it isn't it isn't a kind of a I want to kind of call it a faw epic film because uh, the CGI in the film is very apparent and it gives the film a very stylized aesthetic. But I think that's very much on purpose and it's handled very well. Um, and a lot of the bigger moments in the film are very metaphorical. So a lot of the use of animals and stuff has to do with the fierceness of the heart that craves independence and, 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 the uh, and things like this. And, um, you know, it's just an amazing three hour, uh, you know, roller coaster ride that just when you think you've got it all figured out and, and, you know, that's about it. This is what kind of movie this is. It hits you with another aspect of itself. I think, you know, this is a movie that has some genuine sentiment in it. Hmm. It has two uh, uh, pretty beguiling love stories. It's got an extremely uh, um, touching um, story of friendship. And it is about um, uh, the Indian fight for independence. Um, And it's just a, it's just a big cartoony, heartfelt intense fun time so uh yeah if you can see this with a crowd go see it with a crowd um it's interesting when you talk about why a film kind of connects to, with people all over the world um i think the director is uh, rajmuli is also very uh shocked by this <laughs> but i think this film comes along at a time when people just want to see raw pure goodness uh so you know sacrifice friendship um attached to the idea of uh a political freedom and attached to the idea that um that nationality doesn't have to be synonymous with corruption um and so you know this is definitely finding an audience in different parts of the world um, that really wants something to cheer for and feel good about. And I, I, I think, uh, it, it does have the potential to, to be bigger. Um, and, uh, uh if it bigger release, I think it might, uh, it might actually, it might actually benefit from it. 
Yeah, it doesn't sound like a downer like we get <laughs> like a lot of those around this time of year. Um, and it, ha- it sounds like the themes in it are, are universal and relatable. So that that makes me look forward to it even more. And certainly I'm I'm glad that uh, people also got a little taste there of hearing Mike and Dave talk about passionately about film because they do that so well on their own show, Mind Frames, which I hope oh, everybody subscribes you, to. Yeah, it's so great. It's pretty much monthly now, right? You just talk, oh, yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Uh, I seriously enjoy just about every episode, even when I disagree, <laughs> which is rare, but still. I and think we'll forgive you for that. We'll forgive you for being wrong. It, oh, it's, oh, sure, it's hard sure. to be wrong yeah, in the world. You know, I love the Directors Club, too, but um, ours, our, our, our podcast is not always a love fest. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> there's fighting. Sometimes there's panning of films. Um, <laughs> yes. Usually we do films we love. Uh, especially since we've gotten less regular, but you know, we're, we're becoming regular again. And with award season coming up, I'm sure we'll be arguing one of our most passionate arguments, probably our biggest argument was actually over um, a character in knives out. So we'll see if we can replicate <laughs> that for when glass, when we get to see glass onion. Oh, I'm excited for that. Am I, am oh, I mistaken? Am I mistaken, Dave, that you weren't a fan of the French dispatch? Oh God, no! I thought the French Dispatch was the was the nadir of Wes Anderson in every possible way. He his aesthetic completely overtook the film, and his story was sort of disjointed and just didn't connect. None of the stories really connected with me. See, I find that I I always I always think of Dave as loving everything, and so when I heard that, I was like, "All right." <laughs> I think I'm having a good influence on him. I, he watched that with me, and I was having a, I was a, you know, having a reaction during the filming. We watched that at, at my apartment, I think. Uh, yeah, Dave does kind of like everything, doesn't he? At first, well, not the monsters, and that will remain the lost episode of Mind Frame. So. Episode sixty-two is lost. That's correct. Woo, yep. Did we hate that thing? Well, I'm one of those weirdos that doesn't like Rob Zombie movies in general. Like, I try. <laughs> but I just I can't. I don't get think that makes you a weirdo. I think that makes you pretty normal. Yeah, uh, not bad. There's one that I like, and that's the Devil's Rejects. But everything I get that. else is yeah. weird. It is weird, weird. In, in not a good way. Yeah, it's weird how he's got the following that he does. But I am also not going to ruin other people's fun either. No. Uh, something very different from RRR is a movie that um, I'm hoping everybody will catch up with, including you, Dave. Um, I'm assuming this is going to be one of those surprises in the mail in the near future. It's a movie called After Sun. Yeah. Oh, wow. So it's right up there with um, the Banshees of Inishirin or Inishirin for top pick of 2022 for me. It's a very poetic movie. It's, and it's also kind of hard to describe because there's very, in terms of plot, there isn't a whole lot of it. There isn't a lot of incidents in it. It's more of one of those memory mood pieces that some people struggle with sometimes, especially when you think of people not connecting necessarily to something like Malik. But this is, this is a little more grounded. This is a little bit, you know, less dreamy or, you know, um, graceful. It's more, it's more raw, but it's sort of all about just the mysteries surrounding the inner world of your parents. And and in this case, a daughter observing her father and not 
always being entirely sure why he is the way he is or why he is struggling or why he seems aloof or, um, yeah, just kind of lost or deep in thought. He's not necessarily engaged with the world around him. And that also sadly sometimes includes her, the daughter. Uh, this is a debut film from Charlotte Wells and it's, it's clearly personal. She lost her father at a young age. And I think that element alone will hook me in because I think when something shocking like that has happened to somebody as it has to me, there is this sense of deep feeling that never goes away. Like feeling, I wish I could have known everything about this person that gave me life. (laughs) You know, this person that I was closest to in some cases. And I think this film sort of captures that. And it's, it's kind of hard at times when you, when you think about, Oh, I, I didn't get to know why my father was the way he was in, in like, we never had that in-depth conversation about emotion sometimes, you know? And I think that this film is, is more of like an observation of what that experience is like. There's a lot of ambiguity. Things aren't always spelled out, but it, it sort of culminates into this stunning beauty and, and grace and, it it really worked its magic on me as it went along. And there's two very memorable uses of pop songs that are forever seared into me. And I I don't want to spoil them because I think they're, they're popular songs and certainly they've been used before in other films, but um, there is some, some magic to experiencing them fresh when you watch this movie and you go, Oh, they're using this song. That's amazing. Um, But yeah, the, and just the way it's filmed, it's it, again, very lyrical. Um, sometimes you're just focusing on a pile of books or sometimes you see uh, adult version of this daughter in a television screen reflection, or there's like these stroby dance sequences that feel a little reflective of what the father's internal state might be. So it's working you, a lot. <laughs> but you didn't like the film, right? I think I liked it. oh god um it's 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 i mean again you everybody watches movies in this subjective way so you bring yourself to this experience and it's hard to separate that and i always bring up the bias of anything about fathers is probably going to hit home for me um so there's that there's, there's a possibility that somebody can watch this movie and go, eh, no, nah, it just didn't connect with me or didn't click with me or I wasn't emotionally engaged by it. But I think just about everything I, I loved about it. And I do love movies that are more of a mood piece or about memory and sort of like trying to reconcile with the past and hoping that you don't follow the same path necessarily as your parents. But at the same time, you're also acknowledging their humanity and their imperfections and the fact that they, had some love for you, even if it wasn't always externalized. Uh, and I, I just, I don't know. There's something lurking beneath the surface of this movie in a way that's even hard to summarize with one viewing. So it's one of those that I'm like, I can't wait to watch it again to see if I pick up on more details because there's a lot to absorb. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's very melancholic, but also 
very uh, heartwarming at the same time. It's it's one of those sensory experiences I don't think you'll walk away from and go, oh, I don't know. I don't know if anything really clicked with me, but I, for me, everything clicked with me. I love this movie. Uh, and I can't remember the actor's name, but he's on that show Normal People, and a lot of people love that show. Uh, he's kind of the main star. Oh, Paul Mescal. He's he plays the father in this. Uh, and you know, this great. is quickly turning into the After Sun episode. It sure can. <laughs> <laughs> but we all know that weird the Weird Al story is going to sweep the Academy Awards, so it really doesn't matter if we see any other movies this year as long as we see Weird. It's uh, it's a weird movie. <laughs> and uh, I, I was mostly entertained by it. I don't want to. I again, I don't want to be super critical because I love Weird Al. And how can you it's, not? It's our next episode, so you don't have to worry. Anything you say is going to be eventually drowned out by the absolute chorus of man love for Weird Al that we are going to throw out into the airwaves with episode sixty four. Well, I'm very happy to hear that because the more love for Weird Al, the happier I am. Um, I'll just I'll just say that I feel like it runs out of steam just a little bit, but I most of it's hilarious. Uh, there's a pool party. That's all I'm gonna say. For the Mike, what are you looking it. forward to seeing? What am I looking forward to seeing? Um, I am looking forward to the whale. As you know, I think I'm the most looking forward to that. Uh, you know, I do want to see Glass Onion. You know, I, I have a lot of catching up to do. Um, I will recommend. I'm keeping my options. I'm trying not to be judgmental. You know, I'm trying not to make any judgments. I want to see as much as possible this year and not try to predict winners too early. I've made, I've ruined myself in the past, you know, uh, like the menu. Like, I, I don't want to avoid the menu, even though I have reservations about it. I want to see it. Same ah. for the Fablemans. These are movies I'd usually be panning before even seeing. Um, like, I'm so really not that interested in the Fablemans, but I'm going to force myself to see it. Um, you know, the self-indulgent. Um, it's good. What you about know the- what? Everyone always tells me every time he makes a movie that's in love with the 1950s and hit and and I'm always like, okay, I'm I'm moving on. Just like last year with uh um oh the you know the 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 remake. What was it called? West Side uh, Story. West Side Story. That I did not like West Side Story, okay. And I have a feeling that I'm gonna feel the same way about the Fablements, but I'm keeping an open mind. It's just I'm just not in love with nostalgia, the nostalgia of his childhood. I'm not in love with that world. I'm not in love with uh, you know, his own like narcissistic love of himself making movies so you're (laughs) starting to make me pan it so i'm just gonna back off as a narcissist man that's pretty rugged wow i don't know no they're 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 out there people i I mean i hear you know i i i i hear you mike i mean i i think that you know there's definitely been the spielberg i like and the spielberg i don't like as much now for me um i i would probably color myself very interested in the Fablemans. My, my, my own thought is I hope it's not going to be too syrupy. Um, there are a couple other movies coming out one by Sam Mendez and I cannot remember the name of it. Empire of light, empire of light. And it's supposed to be great. And it's about the movies. And uh, from what I understand and Babylon, 
which uh, also looks like a hoot um, and has a lot of people in it that I like and had a really fun trailer that is about Hollywood. So, you know, um, I don't know. Some of my favorite movies are movies about movies like Sunset Boulevard. So we'll we'll, we'll just have to see. But um, I do think that there's uh, there is a generational divide for for people and that's always an interesting thing for mike and i because we're just far enough apart in age that for me spielberg was absolutely central to my movie going experience um right at the peak of his you know he yeah modern spielberg does he get a pass for past spielberg no he doesn't and i don't like everything modern that he's done um but I'll take I'll take bad Spielberg on a day over a lot of other directors. Yes, 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 yes. I would I would agree with that to a certain extent. I mean, oh, it's interesting though because when I went to see the Banshees uh, at uh, at the Landmark, three trailers in a row, the ones you just mentioned, Dave, The Fablemans, Empire of Light, and Babylon, and I saw all these in a row, and I'm like, I get it. You love movies, filmmakers. Yeah. I get it. And then the nickel, and then the Nicole Kidman AMC ad. Yes, exactly. The magic of movies. Movies are <laughs> dreams. I know. Movies, I know. Movies will make everything better. But again, like I'm not going to fully review the Fablemans, but there are things in that movie that are literally from my life, and I. It was it was eerie. Like I had the train set. I made movies with my friends. Uh, <sighs> See, like, again, nostalgia can sometimes work in its favor, especially when you've experienced it directly yourself. Like, you kind of immediately put yourself in the movie screen and go, oh, I did th- I did a version of that. I understand where this character is coming from. I, You know, but you could call it masturbatory <laughs> if you want. I mean, certainly detractors of, of when filmmakers become very indulgent. I understand that. Uh, feeling and then and I know there's going to be people who don't like the Fablemans. I I think it's sort of <sighs> yeah. It, it 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 for for you Spielberg fans, you're going to love it. And if you have reservations, especially about modern day Spielberg, you probably won't. And I understand both sides, to be honest. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But we uh, can move on now. Okay. To the filmmaker that we are discussing on this episode of the Directors Club podcast, and his name is Michael Curtis. Play it once, Sam, for all time's sake. I don't know what you mean, Miss Elsa. Play it, Sam. Play as time goes by. Oh, I can't remember it, Miss Elsa. I'm a little rusty on it. I'll hum it for you. Da-da-da-da-da-da. I'm wondering what your first experiences were with this director, assuming, okay, this is probably one of the classics, like, you know... Your White Christmas or your Casablanca. Uh, we'll start with Mike since he's new to the show. I'm wondering w- about your background, too, in general, Mike. Like, what made you fall in love with movies? Uh, it, and then you could sort of talk about 
your first experience seeing a Michael Curtiz movie? Hmm. You know, that's a good question. I'm not a hundred percent sure I know which the order in which I saw them, but I think it's a safe bet that I saw white Christmas or Casablanca first. Um, I distinctly remember watching Casablanca when I was probably 2019, uh, but it's very possible I saw White Christmas as a kid and forgot about it. Uh, what is my relationship with Michael Curtiz? You know, well, that's going to be this whole episode, isn't it? <laughs> It'll probably slowly come out. But um, without revealing too much at the, at this beginning, I will say that I have a lot more respect for him than you know, my grouchy attitude you might assume I have. I thoroughly enjoy a lot of his movies. I think he has made some really nearly perfect movies and the the cast that he got to work with and uh, the things he did to scripts, um, I think uh, overshadows anything. You know, he wasn't the nicest guy. He was kind of a hired hand, <laughs> you know, old school. But yeah, I have a lot of respect for him and I am excited to talk about uh, what a great director he is. That's great to hear. Um, I'm also just curious too. Was there a gateway movie for you that made you fall in love with movies in general? Since you're new to the show, I was more or less curious too about that fact. Like what was there something that made you go, okay, movies are for me. You know, I, I that's something I'm always curious about when I talk with somebody on the show. Hmm, can, that's you know, a good it, question. Yeah, it, it doesn't have to even be a single title, but was there, I don't know, just a lightning bolt moment in life that made you go, oh, I guess I just always equate it to that scene in Almost Famous where, you know, your sister gives you your record collection. You're suddenly you're like, my life has changed forever, you know, something you know, along when, those lines. <laughs> when I was uh, in college, you know, prior to maybe like my last year or second year of college, I did love movies, but mainly like for entertainment, um, entertainment purposes, you know, it's like, okay, I was entertained. I was entertained. Uh, I think the first movie that I saw that kind of sparked that a movie could like change you, um, was one of the l very last I'm not I'm gonna, I should look up uh, if it was it was probably in the last 10 movies that uh, Jean-Luc Godard made uh, and it was called at least in French I'm trying to get the English title Notre Musique and that movie like has a very uh an ending that is uh you know not easy to decipher and that was kind of my first window into like a movie could be could say something less direct than say a very Hollywood clear cut. Um, you know, they didn't have Marvel movies back then, but Hollywood clear cut blockbuster, which some of those are great too. But I think multiple music by Godard is like the first one where I saw like, this is my introduction to art house film. I was probably when I was 18, 19. Yeah, no, that's the right age. You know, I always, I always say Pulp Fiction was the one that sort of changed me. Like it, it was just like, okay, movies are more than just entertainment. You know, because before that, I did love your Spielberg movies and Back to the Future and all that, of course. But something about Pulp Fiction, it just, yeah, it sort of transcended space and time. <laughs> it was just like, what it, what are movies could do this? But yeah, no, Godard is is a great gateway filmmaker into the art house scene for sure. And as a matter of fact, uh, guest co-host Bill Ackerman is going to he's not as intimidated as I am. 
I am very intimidated to, to do a Jean-Luc Godard episode. He's doing one early next year. Um, I don't know how long that episode will be. I think you need to do three. <laughs> I don't think you can do one Jean-Luc Godard. You're right. Yeah, not bad. Yeah. I, I think you need to separate them because like the late period, the communist period in the uh, 60s, which is most what people most think of, I think those all deserve their own distinct um, – episodes but you know what do what you can maybe make it five hours long uh yeah yeah i'm excited for that i'm 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 a fan but again that filmography i love i love his communist period Mm. like early 70s to like mid 70s that's like i love those films oh i can see that for sure oh boy dave you're a little you're a little bit older but you're young at heart as we all know um, when did Michael Curtiz, when did that name come into your life? You know, it's funny. Um, like I mentioned before, I have about, you know, five or six My- Michael Curtiz movies that are movies that I go back to, um, over and over again. And, uh, you know, he was a guy who worked in almost every genre. Um, but at the time when I was growing up, there was no cable, uh, there was no, you know, videotape or VCRs. Um, and so when a film came on television, that's when you saw it and then it would leave or it would come in the theater. That's when you saw it. And then if you were lucky, you might see it again, chopped up on TV. And so movies, you know, were more of a magical thing, uh, for people who were really affected by them. Oddly enough, I think the way that movies affected me the most early on, um, was sort of a graduation from television, you know, television in my day was very episodic and very hyperactive. And there was a lot of silly sort of things on the air. Comedy tended to be very broad and uh, Looney Tunes and three stooges were on all the time. And that's kind of how my brain worked. I was a hyperactive little kid, but then I started seeing movies that were, you know, um, and, and movies were these things that took longer. And so you could sort of drench them in atmosphere. And I think about the time I first started to notice movies was when, um, uh, I started having nightmares as a result of watching them. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, these were movies that I would see on television, like, uh, creature feature programming at late at night. Uh, like the mummy with Boris Karloff and, um, and things like that. And uh, I, I think that for me, movies became something that was about something deep and real and undeniable that, that the things that movies, the, 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 the thing about being able to drench the movies in atmosphere gave a sense of urgency to whatever, what you were intuiting from them. And so I would definitely have really deep emotional experiences watching films. Oddly enough, I didn't come to Michael Curtiz until later in life. Mm. And, uh, I probably didn't see, um, Casablanca until I was, uh, in my twenties. Um, and after I saw it, I was never the same. Um, Casablanca is the epitome of what you can do with a studio system in Hollywood. And, um, 
then I got to go back and discover movies like The Adventures of Robin Hood, which I think is still the best Robin Hood movie easily. Oh, yeah. And Mystery, The Wax Museum with, with the great underused, underutilized Lionel Atwill and Fay Ray and Dr. X, uh, oh, also um, Lionel Atwell. And is that Fay Ray in there? I think Fay Ray might be in that uh, one, too. I think so. But, you know those movies have since been restored and put, put out into the world and these beautiful Blu-ray editions from Warner archive. Um, and, uh, I'm still sort of waiting on the, uh, the, the definitive adventures of Robin hood from 1938 with Errol Flynn. Um, and then my other two movies would probably be, um, we're no angels. Um, and, uh, white Christmas. Um, white Christmas is a weird flick. White Christmas. I often call it the Christless Christmas movie. Um, <laughs> Because it's drenched in Americana. It has some fantastic musical numbers in it. Mm -hmm. um, it's extremely pretty to look at. And you forget it about 10 minutes after you watch it. I know, it's right? That happens to me too. <laughs> and I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I, I love White Christmas, but I probably don't love it as much as... Uh, any of the other Christmas movies, like, you know, uh, It's a Wonderful Life or any of the other classics. I probably even like Miracle on 34th Street, the original one, uh, more than that. We're No Angels, on the other hand, to me, it's kind of the conglomeration of everything that Michael Curtiz did well. And I was introduced to We're No Angels when I was living in a uh, Christian commune uh, in the inner city of Chicago. And a friend of mine said, I have to show you this really weird Christmas movie. It's got um, a Humphrey Bogart in it. Basil Rathbone is in it. Um, uh, Leo G. Carroll, who, of course, was in marvelous, um, you know, movies like Tarantula and stuff growing up. Aldo um, Ray. Aldo Ray and Peter Ustinov. Mm -hmm. Very young Peter Ustinov. And it's about three escaped uh, Devil's, Con Devil's Island convicts who... Um, decide on their own to help out the struggling uh, businessman and his family so that uh, the wicked uncle doesn't take their, um, you know, their, their, their store from them that they, that they used to make a living and uh, everything in it is very arch. Um, there are deadly poisonous snakes and murders and uh, the whole thing couldn't be more heartwarming. It is, it is a it is a weird mix of all the sort of little things that that Michael Curtiz did during his career. Um, that said, Casablanca was probably my first exposure, and uh, yeah, and I've seen it many many times since then, and I've screened it for many crowds since then. Yeah, well, you mentioned We're No Angels, and I got to say that the reason why I went back to it was because of the remake. And the remake was not good. Surprise. No, it's not. You know, it's so weird because I think I might have even said this on the last episode, but it's just strange to me that that movie is not good with De Niro, Sean Penn, uh, written by David Mamet, directed by Neil Jordan. And it's not good. <laughs> no, it's not. It has none of the charm no. or heart or fun. Um, yeah. That, you know, it doesn't even have that fun look. That we're no angels has no very true very true um i don't think i don't think anybody's heart was into that remake and you could see it on screen whereas a movie like casablanca it's interesting to th talk about this because obviously you could probably there's 
a whole Roger Ebert commentary out there on Casablanca. There's uh, an incredible new 4K restored version of it available now. I think fairly recently now people can pick that up. And I'm sure there's a ton of extras on it. And I can't wait to dive into that and watch a 4K of what I consider to be a perfect movie. And it's interesting to me that um, since I mentioned Pulp Fiction, Tarantino recently put out like a list of seven or eight movies that he thinks are perfect. And Casablanca is not on that list. And I was kind of surprised. I'm wondering if he has reservations that I only, I only know a couple of other people do in terms of the chemistry not being there between Bogart and Bergman, which I can't, I I know I can't believe some people think that, but I think there were even concerns on set that it wasn't like, this is an interesting case of people being kind of not so sure of what this was ultimately going to be. Uh, I think Curtiz even was just not necessarily shrugging it off, but just like, all right, this is another movie I'm making. I make like, you know, 20 of these a, week, a year or something like right. he, un, unprecedented, like just his staggering output of like 180 movies. And he was making like five or six a year and from all genres and just, you know, cause back then it, it, it you know, it was basically quantity, you know, over quality, but not in all cases. Like there's a lot of great examples of directors, you know, like, you know, of course, John Ford, Howard Hawks, Victor Fleming, all, all these incredible filmmakers. And Curtiz was certainly revered for, you know, having a great track record. But I think during the filming of this, it wasn't necessarily like, Oh, we got a classic here. So we're going to make it, we're going to make sure that it is a cra- classic. It's sort of, I guess happenstance, I guess it just sort of happened, you know, I mean, it's got this well, peculiar magic to it. You do have to, you do have to remember it was, it, it wasn't an inconsiderable film in Warner brothers slate. It was given a good, a good budget and an absolutely a list cast from top to bottom. Um, they definitely poured the, the resources of the studio into it. I mean, you had Humphrey Bogart and uh, Paul Heinrich who were, two of the biggest stars in Hollywood at the time, Ingrid Bergman, uh, Claude Rains, and then character actors like Peter Lorre and Sidney Greenstreet, mm-hmm. who, you, you, you know, at that time, especially you didn't get, get better than that. Um, and this is post Maltese Falcon. So, you know, that cast tells an audience right away exactly what they should expect in terms of quality and the compelling nature of what it is they're going to be watching. Um, the special effects in the film are great. The editing and the way it's shot is, uh, to my mind, very A-list. It's, 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 um, uh, and it did win three Oscars, you know, it won, it won best picture, best director and best adapted screenplay. Uh, so, um, in fact, I mean, the cinematographer was Arthur Edison and he, you know, did the Lost World, the Old Dark House, the mm. Invisible Man, the Maltese Falcon, the Thief of Bad Dad, All Quiet on the Western Front, and Frankenstein. So, you know, Gosh. some of the some of the great talent of the time was involved in making this movie. Yeah, without a doubt. I <sighs> I think the idea that uh 
they got lucky with Casablanca, which is kind of the mythology of this film. Yeah, like a happy accident. Yeah. I yeah, I don't know who coined the term, but that is often uh, I've heard that many times. I I don't buy it for a second uh, for a lot of the same reasons that Dave is, is saying. If you look at the people involved in this film, all of the pieces were there to make a, a good movie. Um, you know, of course, famed producer Hall B. Wallace. All right, look at look at his resume. A lot of the th- pieces that come together, of course, he did. He was a producer on the Maltese Falcon. We already talked about that. Um, I think this is like one of the end of his Warner Brothers career. Well, Warner Brothers had brought out everyone on their roster, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which they did for every movie. But this was considered this was this was going to be one of their big gambles. And, yeah, no one knew it was going to go on to become one of the most revered movies of all time. I'm not saying that. Right. But right. the idea that this was some little scrappy movie that came out of nowhere uh, when they put their best director, their most influential producer, their biggest stars, they rewrote, did a bunch of rewrites. They, the Warner brothers themselves were involved. They were in a lot of films at that point, of course, notoriously. But this is, I do not buy for a second that there wasn't a, lo- a lot of love going on for this film and there wasn't a lot of high hopes at the time. I don't know the history that intimately, but I know all these names are big names, were big names at the time, and the A-list that that they had to pull out of film at that time. And the promotion, the promotional, uh, this had a huge promotional campaign. Um, you know, they re-released it like to time it with like goings on in the world. Like they did the premiere, I think, during... Uh, the initial invasion of North Africa, and then they like re-released it, or uh, they did something around the time that Casablanca was being liberated in the war. So there's like an incredibly, uh, and that's kind of that that old Hal's Hal's magic there. It, it's kind of an incredible uh, promotional campaign. So I don't buy the happy accident uh, argument at all. Too many things were already in place years before. And, you know, timing is everything, but I don't think that I think if this was a well-placed bet at the right moment, not an accident. I'd be inclined to agree with that more. It just seems like you're right. There's like this mythology surrounding it that people want to perpetuate and believe like, oh, yeah, they weren't really thinking too much about this movie while making it. They just sort of made it and it just sort of happened, you know, uh, I mean, I th- it's an interesting idea. <laughs> I know, um, I know they originally wanted another very prolific filmmaker, William Wyler, to helm this project, but uh, you know he was unavailable at the time, and Curtis just uh, had already cemented a reputation. I mean, he'd been directing movies since the twenties, if I'm not mistaken, and just kept going and going and going like i, I think now, i think he'd been directing movies since the teens he came to oh, yeah, the united right. states in 1926 i believe yeah and yeah, so yeah. He, he had a silent career that's right um in europe yeah and yeah, it's 1912 it, was when he started making movies he did a and he did he you know 49 years of making movies yeah and 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 you know certainly he would even say that he was addicted you know to to just making movies and it was just something that he had to do. And again, as we mentioned, not the most pleasant guy to work with. (laughs) Let me respond to what you said about Tarantino. You know, Tarantino was in the news as always recently for saying, you know, he won't do um, a Marvel movie because he's not a hired hand. I don't need a job. 
And you know, he said that. And you notice that um, you said he didn't include Casablanca on his list. I am not surprised at all. Tarantino pours his soul into his movies. All right. His movies are an extension of himself, of his personality, of what he likes. Right. Now, I'm not saying Curtiz was just showing up and cashing a check. But Curtiz was not a director in like the auteur sense like we think of today mm-hmm. or that has come to dominate. He was a director, kind of like a CEO of making a movie. And uh, you'll notice that um, a lot of people at that time might have considered, you know, different characters. Like the, the, the director had not firmly cemented themselves as like the principal uh, artistic force behind a movie. They pretty much had, but you know, a lot of respect would have been going to the producer at that point. And, you know, uh, I think you said, you mentioned Roger Ebert's com- commentary. Uh, he's pretty adamant that, that Wallace is more important in the making of this film than uh, Curtis. I don't know if I agree with that. I don't know enough to have well, like an informed opinion, but that's his and opinion. We're, and we're well into the, we're well into the period of the movie star at this point. And, you know, the glamour, period of Hollywood films. Um, you know, and it, 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 and it's really, it's really interesting what you're bringing up, Mike, because I think, I think that there were a lot of great directors that arose out of this period. And you think of John Ford, you think of uh, Frank Capra, you think of Billy Wilder. Um, and, uh, and obviously, um, I'm blanking Cecil B. DeMille, um, you know, take them out of the picture and you take away a large chunk of what made Hollywood this period so memorable. Mm -hmm. But I think that you also, you, you also have a sense of Hollywood as a business that wasn't quite present in say the 1920s. Um, I mean, you think of Eric von Stroheim being, you know, publicly embarrassed over his, uh, over his, you know, uh, treatment of the actors and his over budgeting on, um, on greed and, and, and basically more or less screwing up his career. Um, you know, it, it takes a lot to maintain a presence in Hollywood at this point. And Curtiz was somebody who did it for 49 years. He wasn't, he, he wasn't just, you know, he, he wasn't just somebody that was, that was along for the ride. Yeah. And I would agree with that. I mean, some people felt that way to some degree, just because of how much he made, you know, like how could, how could, you know, you're, you maintain that level of quality for each and every film that you make, but he had this, you know, clearly a, a reputation as kind of a harsh taskmaster who, you know, never hesitated to yell or get really intense. And certainly he had trouble working, I believe with Errol Flynn and other actors. But I, as far as I know, he, you know, him and Bogart got along, but I think initially the fear was, not being able to picture Bogart as a romantic lead, you know, well, and that was a, that was came a late to Bogart anyway. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. And I think, 
they that you know they took some they took some risks and I you know it's it, it, again I think what makes this movie really um, timeless <laughs> uh, is the again I think I probably used this terminology earlier but universal themes that you can still. Like, I mean, I'm sure, you know, creating a narrative and having somebody like Joseph Campbell point out all the tropes and things that you come to expect in certain stories or certain things that you've experienced, whether if it is unrequited love or you served in, in a war or any number of things that are mentioned in this film. What it comes down to for me is it's a story about striving for something meaningful and learning to be selfless. Uh, and accepting the fact that, you know, some, some love isn't meant to be fully realized and you should be grateful for even having just the moments that you shared together early on, even if they're not meant to continue. Well, so. it's, yeah. And I mean, those, those themes are juxtaposed against a group of characters who are all very problematic mm -hmm. yeah, uh, and caught in very problematic situations. You know, Casablanca is a very complex film full of complex human relationships and ends with a murder uh, yeah. at the end. Of it. Uh, and you can argue, you know, wartime or whatever, and it's a Nazi, but um, it's very, it's, it's, it's sort of quasi disturbing. The more that you think about it, um, the way that all these characters have to live on the edge of respectability and the forces in the world that are driving them to have to do that. And it makes you feel even a little bit sorry for Peter Lorre, um, sure. you know, and some of the other, some of the other characters. Uh, um, I think that, you know, it, it, it's interesting um, that, that Curtiz did Yankee doodle dandy the same year that he did Casablanca. <laughs> That's mind blowing. That's range. That's just weird. You know, there's Dave, Dave, when we get to the breaking point, you know, he made three movies in 1950. Right, right, right. And I mean, you know, it just Mildred Pierce. I mean, the Seahawk, Dodge City, uh, Kid Galahad, Angels with Dirty Faces. This guy made every kind of movie you could make in Hollywood up to that point. Um, and. You know, and, and, and it's funny because, I mean, you know, what's the old quote? And people used to attribute this to Samuel Goldwyn, but it, it, it's really him. And he's, he was chewing out an assistant um, because the assistant hadn't done something he wanted. And he said, the next time I want an idiot to do this, I'll do it myself. And, <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of a Leo, De, Leo DeRocher of, uh, of, uh, 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 of, of the spoken word. Um, maybe he was just more comfortable behind the camera. At the same time, you have to think of a film like uh, The Charge of the Light Brigade, which he did with with Flynn. And it would be really interesting to see how his relationship with Bogart was shaped by his interaction with Errol Flynn, because yeah. Flynn went after him for using a device called the Running W in Charge of the Light Brigade that killed 25 horses that's right for a single oh. shot in that film and flynn was horrified and went public with it and then there were all these laws passed about what you could do and not do with animals on mm -hmm. set and they made movies after that but they didn't they, they weren't friends anymore and they didn't speak much except when they had to so there was probably definitely a softening um that had gone on in his life leading up to this 
as we take a breath and reflect. <gasps> oh. oh, yeah. And speaking of the charge of the Light Brigade, I am going to be including Sergio's review of the charge of the Light Brigade. But he talked about his love of the remake, the Tony Richardson version. And he, I, he was a huge fan of both versions as far as I know, but had a lot more to say about the uh, remake just because it was one of those, yeah, totally under the radar uh, movies that not a lot of people had seen. And he wanted to bring attention to, uh, I think, the 1968 version. So it's, it's, and that's a story that's been done a few times, much like we'll get to it, but the breaking point. Uh, no, that's a, that's another really interesting film with, um, yeah, Errol Flynn as major Vickers in that story. And it was, ooh, hard, hardcore stuff and really intense. And yet Casablanca is, you know, considered this romantic movie, but at the same time, you're right, Dave, there's a lot of darker edges throughout here. You know, we can sort of look at it as a love story that allows its heroes to, you know, tap into something within themselves that they, uh, you know, sort of, you know, didn't know it was there, but then they realize it and it becomes, you know, something, something transcendent. And, you know, a lot of people will certainly point out some of the incredibly quotable lines here that <laughs> will forever be a part of of pop culture, you know, I mean, well, I mean, we, there's like five of them. Yeah. At least. This is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I think between all of us, Yes, I think this is the <laughs> beginning round up the usual suspects. Yeah. Uh, we'll always have Paris. Here's looking at you kid. Oh yeah. Oh, that's a good one. And then there's the one Mike says, whenever I come over to his house, of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world, he walked into mine. <laughs> and, you know, that quote right there, it's like I, I was trying to think of why does to me White Christmas. I know we're just kind of going all over. Why is White Christmas so dated when I watch it? And why does Casablanca feel so timeless? Oh. I know, and, right? And I think the reason is, and I was talking about that quote, like all the ginger joints you can walk into. It's the mystery of the locale, the mystery mm -hmm. and the mystique of the war as a background. This love story that is kind of just a slow, um, you know, just like a slow boil. I think all those things come together and are foreign enough and are like confusing enough to take you out of it enough in a good way to not see the clothes in the World War II, uh, not see that as something that is quote unquote dating it. And I think that's part of the magic of Casablanca. I think that's what makes it eternal is all of those things are so subtle. The love story and the mystique, they're subtle enough to where they're not bobbing you over the head, where the Christmasness and the post World War II ness and the oh, patriotism yeah. <laughs> and the oh, aggressive 1950s, uh, you know, culture of white Christmas bangs you over the head. It's not subtle yes. at all. It's still a great movie, um, 
but not well, timeless like Casablanca. Casablanca is an adventure you want to climb inside. Uh, White Christmas is a train ride that's fun to ride for a little bit. You yeah. know, it's funny. It's funny because I think that if you, I think if you look if you if you look at Casablanca and the way that it's aged, you have the equanimity of Sam and um um and uh, um Rick's relationship which is clearly a friendship based on um equality and and mutual care for what's best for one another you have a very adult relationship between him and Ingrid Bergman that is extremely difficult to sort through what are we going to do now now what why did you do this um you have the forces of evil, which are, are so beautifully drawn in the film. Um, you know, we talk about Nazis being a, a sort of a cartoony metaphor. I think in like Spielberg movies, often, for instance, they have been in the Indiana Jones movies. Oh yeah. They're kind of like, we'd stack the Nazis up like cordwood, you know, um, uh, um, bang, bang, bang. But I think that in this movie, there's, there's a lot more, there's a lot more subtle treatment of how people felt about that kind of oppression. Mm -hmm. And I think that those are all things that are very, very timely today. And that people are still asking questions about and still, you know, looking for there are, there are moments in this film, the, the waving, uh, the, the singing of the French national anthem. Um, when I screened this for cornerstone festival, um, back in the early aughts, uh, I made a giant French flag and put it on a dowel. And during that scene, we went out to the audience and everybody stood up and we all sang the French national anthem together while we waved the flag. Um, and, you know, something you like know the that, words to the French national anthem. Wow. We, I'm impressed. We, we actually, we actually printed them and handed them out. And, and it was because the sim symbolic nature of that really has to do with, with standing against evil. And and also the 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 conclusion that Claude Rains and Rick, you alluded to this, Mike, of how they both those characters come to the conclusion that they come to about what has to be done. And in the end, they realize the logical conclusion is now for them to go off and fight for the resistance. And there's something so Sam and Frodo about that. There's something so right about that to me. Yeah, no kidding. That's a good comparison. Yeah. And and it's something that I think people keep coming back to this movie and it's not, you never get tired of it. Like there's some movies you can rewatch over and over and over again and wear yourself out or something. And I feel like, yeah, I, I look forward to spending time with these people and it was originally based on a play, but it's still beautifully shot. I mean, certainly you can, this is something that I remember even going all the way back to college with Mildred Pierce, just the, the film noir lighting. And some characters are introduced in shadow on the wall or, yeah. you know, when somebody walks into the room, you see them on the wall and it's just like, just, and sometimes they're talking and you just see their shadow. I mean, just like interesting choices. I know we've, we've said, uh, and I think Mike alluded to this, the fact that he, he may not have been an auteur, but he had stylistic touches and flourishes throughout all of his movies that you can kind of go, I could see the same director making 
Casablanca and Mildred Pierce, even if they're entirely different genres. That's how I feel. <laughs> you know, I just I just I notice things, right. especially when you watch a few in a row, you kind of go, oh, yeah, I can kind of see that. But he was so comfortable doing all sorts of different things. And here it just feels like every, all the elements came together in the most perfect way that we keep going back to it for a lot of reasons. Uh, and certainly it should be a classic, <laughs> you know, and it's one of those movies you watch and you go, yeah, that makes sense. I, you know, when I watched this in Kane, I understood why that was a classic. So I don't know. You know one, one aspect about this film that I think doesn't get talked about enough, or maybe it gets talked about too much. We'll see. We'll see. And that is when this movie came out and when this movie is being filmed, Casablanca was actually occupied by the Axis. <laughs> and the war was still going on. You know, yeah, White Christmas is post-war. <laughs> you know, Longest Day, post-war. Um, all these World War II movies from the 50s that we think of as like uh, of that era, even with those stars, with the same stars, are, are kind of post-war. The outcome of the war, and specifically the locale that it's filmed in, or supposedly taking place in, was not determined yet. Um, so I think that that adds a little bit of the mystique. The certainty of looking back is not present in the script. It mm -hmm. is a movie that is rooted in a very present, fluid dynamic uh, without the knowledge of which way it's going to go. Not that they were <laughs> thinking the Nazis were going to win the war, but, you know, the Nazis in there, I think that that plays into why they feel so much less cartoony. It's because the people who wrote this movie and were living it, to them, the Nazis were their contemporaries, and the Nazi threat was a contemporary threat. Uh, I think I think that's an interesting element, and might might be why it, it also helps it be less dated or yeah. less cartoony or less 1950s-y. Well, it's full of people and 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 extras, I believe, who even escaped actual Nazi persecution. Uh, and I, that's that. It's it's it, yeah. You can see the movie as being you know, uh, about refugees. And I think even Paul Onreed was, was Jewish and he, he was certainly labeled, uh, an enemy of the Nazi party. It's like interesting that those elements play into this story because we often look at Casablanca as this alt ultimate romantic, timeless melodrama, but it's got this exotic wartime backdrop that you can feel it's very palpable throughout every scene. You know, the actor that played the, uh, that played the Nazi and I feel so bad that I, I, I did not write his name down. Um, but he, you know, very famous film star. He'd played, uh, Oh, it's Conrad Veet. Ah, okay. um, yes, yes. He uh, played, you know, he was the Cesar in cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Right. Uh, he was the man who laughs. He was a very, very famous film star. Um, all over the world. And by the time he made this movie, very established star, uh, could do anything kind of that he wanted. So he was one of those other people that got thrown into this. Um, and he made uh, the option to play the Nazi villain as arch and awful as he could and did that a few times around this period of his career, specifically because he thought it would give people something to hate hmm. about the Nazis. He was that angry and that wanting to use his career to support the war effort um, that he wanted people to have that archetype to 
bounce off of as they as they thought about it. Um, and you know, it's funny. I mean, of course, the you know the movie was written by John and Julius Epstein. Um, there's another person quoted on it, but uh, none of his changes uh, made it into the film. It's um, they were adapting the unproduced screenplay. Everybody goes to Rick's. And uh, John and Julius Epstein wound up writing the film. Um, kind of a side note, Jack Warner, the head of Warner Brothers, um, hated them. Uh, they were always like pulling pranks, and they kept these really weird hours. And so out of spite, uh, Jack Warner, a few years uh, after this, reported them to the House on Un-American Activities Committee. Um, and they never had to testify, but when they were given the form that they had to fill out in case they would get called... They were they there's a question on the forum that said, Have you ever had to work for a subversive organization? And they said, Yes, Warner Brothers. That's what they wrote on the <laughs> Well, yeah, uh, I, th- I think I think unfortunately, um But yeah, you definitely don't you definitely don't separate this film from its politics. No, and I, I you you mentioned the house, uh yeah. Uh, I think John Garfield certainly went through a lot of trouble with the uh, House of American Activity. Or yeah. I can't remember the name. <laughs> How do you say it? The House of... Uh... The Act, House of okay. American Activities Committee. Yes, thank you. That's it. I always get that mixed up in my head. But no, yeah, we'll, we'll certainly get to John Garfield in more greater detail. But um, I... Uh, yeah, I guess to just sum things up, I mean, this is a movie that has characters... And, and feelings that are both universal and particular to that time period to give it this, you know, transcendent quality, yet making it very grounded at the same time. Like, you know these people, you can understand where they're coming from. It's not just, you know, it's not a fantasy. It's not a, it's, it, it is a true blue Hollywood movie, but yet there's real feelings and complex characters. It's not all black and white. It's not like, this is the bad guy and this is the good guy. And, you know, but they, they trade qualities at certain times throughout the movie. And what can you say about just one of the great all-time uses of any song with As Time Goes uh, By? Yeah, you know, Dooley Wilson had been in Stormy Wind- Weather um prior to this mm-hmm. but the funny thing about Dooley wilson was is he was a drummer he was not a piano player so all the piano playing he does in the film is fake oh wow yeah, you never see his hands up close yeah. on the on the piano um you know too another weird thing about this movie is a lot of people think that jack benny um may be in the background and a lot of people claim to have jack benny sightings hmm. in the various crowd sequences and um I don't know. But the only other thing I wanted to share was that um, this movie was so hugely successful that Warner Brothers decided to basically um, do another version of it. And if you watch to have and have not, it's basically Casablanca for all intents and purposes in terms of the plotting. But it's also the movie that introduced Lauren Bacall to Humphrey Bogart. Mm-hmm. And of course, we all know about Bogey and Bacall that he he became the great love of her life, and she of his. And uh, uh, it's also the film where you get the line, "You know how to whistle, don't you? You just put your lips together and blow." Yeah, you know it's this is a, this. I know th- what really scared me at at one point in time 
was that there was, I believe, a press release given out into the world that said Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez were going to remake Casablanca. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was like beside myself. If that happens, Gili Blanca. (laughs) But Affleck was the bomb in Phantoms, yo. Um, so yeah, he, he, right. He should, he should be in Casablanca. He should be in the remake. Sure. Let's, let's oh, do that. Gosh. I know that's, I don't that's, trust them. No. I think if you're going to redo this, you cast Danny DeVito in the Peter Lorre <laughs> role and, uh, you get, uh, you replace Sam with a uh, Barney, the dinosaur. And, uh, and then I think, what, what do you, what do you do? I think you get, um, Megan Trainer and uh, the, uh, the her husband Daryl Sabara, who was in the Spy Kids movies. Okay, I think we can do the bogey and uh, Bergman roles. That works for me. Yep. Nope this is a this is a wonderful film in every way, shape, and form. And oh, I wish I could have seen it on the big screen with you, Dave. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, it, it was hard not having anybody to cuddle, but you know. Oh, you saw well. this when it first came out, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> That's something Sergio yes, would say. So this my ass theater. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no. I, again, we're doing this in memory and spirit of Sergio, and that's exactly something he would say. <laughs> he was there. He was there when this first came out, and yes, uh, God rest his oh. soul. But. Um, we miss Sergio. Yes, we do. Every day. Every day there's a reason to think of him. Um, certainly watching Tar, it was like his love of classical music. How can you not think of him? But uh, yeah, there's, I mean, clearly I wanted to just revisit Curtis to hear both, what, what both of you felt about Casablanca, but uh, also because I, I, I'm hoping that, uh, yeah, yeah, there's, there's a heaven that uh, you can listen to podcasts up there. Wouldn't that be great? Yeah. <laughs> I would like to think that would be a, my idea of heaven. Like, oh, I got all the time in the world now to listen to every podcast ever made. So that's why we can all, yeah, just download it now and it'll all be saved in a cloud. <sighs> I just had to. Sorry. So my second favorite Michael Gertie's film. Dave, you mentioned to have and have not. I did. Which is uh, based on an Ernest Hemingway novel. I held my tongue on that, you know, because there's a lot of, uh, it's based on the same book. Uh, And it has Howard Hawks as the director. And the co-writer was William Faulkner. You know, it's like, uh, in many ways, if you were going to pick a bet, (laughs) I think it's truer to the book as well. If you were going to pick a bet, bet on which one was going to be the hit. Of course, Casablanca already came out, but you'd be like, oh, I'm going with to have or have not. Of course. Yeah, Lauren Bacall. No one's no one's arguing against that chemistry. No, 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 no. no. I'm not arguing against the chemistry. I think Michael Curtiz's The Breaking Point is a better film than To Have and Have Not. You know how long I go to jail if they pick me up on this? Ten years, at least. That if there was evidence against you. What's that for? I don't want you to know about this, no part of it. If it comes off, all right, 
tell you about it sometime. Yes, they say every man has a breaking point. But try to find it in Harry Morgan, two-fisted skipper in whose wake lies a trail of adventure that has taken him to strange places among men who live in the shadows beyond the law. Born for danger, he faced the deadly threat of guns, the greater menace of a reckless woman. Every challenge drawing him deeper and deeper into a whirlpool of hazardous intrigue. It's John Garfield as Harry Morgan, who sold his courage to the highest bidder. Patricia Neal as Leona. Easy to know, hard to forget. Where's the money for me? You'll get it tomorrow. I'll get it now. You've got it on you. They wouldn't have set a time without making sure about me. She's got something for me. We're something together. Spoils everything else for me. How do you know till you try? Now, let's see the color of it, Mr. Singh. I have the rest of the money right here. I certainly feel a lot more. And it's not to, you know, disregard to have and have not. It's, 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 a, it's a fine film with incredible chemistry and star power. But I don't know. Again, this was a discovery. This was one of those things where I'm like, I'm doing a Michael Curtiz episode. I should see this movie called The Breaking Point. And then, you know, by the time the ending came along, I was like, holy shit, what am I seeing? This is a fantastic noir that's also a really heavy character study about, you know, essentially desperation that you know, would be utilized in a, a, any number of stories. Like you could even think of breaking bad while watching this movie. Uh, <laughs> like Harry Morgan yeah. really does sort of mm. have this intense desperation at points, you know, where it's just like, I got to do this thing because, you know, I want to support my family. I want to be the best husband I can be like best father I can be. And yet he's a selfish dude too. You know, there's, there's no denying, like he's really in it for himself and he sort of has to come to terms with that. But, um, oh, and, and the things that happen to the people around him, you know, it's just, you know, even, even what his wife goes through, it's just, it's just like, she suddenly is like, well, I, it's clear that you're more attracted to this other femme fatale that's coming into your life. So maybe I'm going to change my hair <laughs> to make you happier and make you appreciate me even more. But I don't know. There is, it's there that the husband and wife relationship in this movie is really interesting for that time period, because you can tell there's genuine sexual attraction between the two of them. It's not like overt and certainly, you know, the, I think this is at a time when people were uh, just, on the edge about like direct expressions of sexual intensity or desire. But I, I really get the feeling those two love each other when they're, you know, in the kitchen together or whatever. But I love everything about this movie too. I really, really do. I want to hear more from the both of you because I don't know if I've ever heard your thoughts on this film. Certainly. Uh, and I'm excited to hear them because uh, for me, this is, right up there with the great works of Curtiz. Well, and I, I love that you picked this film. Um, I'm going to save some of my comments for later. Uh, but uh, I will say that, you know, you picking it meant I, I actually had to go watch it. I had not seen this before. Um, and I think I really understand why you love it so much. It has, 
so much honest emotion in it mm-hmm. and it has so much um again some of that same you know tension of somebody trying to do what's right uh and getting pulled into a lot of darkness around him um and of course that's you know one of the great noir you know plots but at the same time um, he's a family man you know, that's what I think is because like in noir, it's always like the loner, you know, certainly just like somebody who's maybe desperate to be in love or has in- intense attraction towards somebody. And that's why he gets swept into this underworld or whatever. But here, I just think that John Garfield's character, he's like he, he wants to be an everyman in some ways, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, the cast in this movie is almost as good and in some ways better than the cast in Casablanca. And, and, and to me, what, what makes me say that is when I went and I looked at the movies that were connected to this movie, um, almost every single cast member in this film um, was in other major major films um i think the cast of this film you've got the original invasion of the body snatchers freaks the christopher reeves superman the day the year stood still kiss me deadly wow the postman always rings twice on the waterfront it just goes on and on and on and that's uh that's without even doing like a full bore you know look look into what what uh everybody that's in this movie there's even a guy in this movie and i always i love this guy his name's will uh campbell and uh he's in uh star trek in a couple of fantastic episodes uh including uh one where he plays a character called trelane who uh is uh basically a kid who happens to look like an adult who is punished by his alien parents for uh, capturing the uh, 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 crew of the Enterprise and treating them like playthings. Um, so, you know, just a lot of recognizable faces and a lot of cultural history attached to what's going on in the film uh, and, 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 you know, things that make it sort of live beyond itself. I'm really surprised it's not more well-known and more written about. And especially now that it's available through the Criterion Collection, everybody. Pick it up, especially this month. Mike, what do you think of the breaking point? Yeah, so we can move on. We can move on from that other movie that's based on the same book. Uh, I, what did I think of it? Well, I'm just still floored by comparing this cast to the cast of Casablanca, Dave. I'm sorry. This is a great cast, but it is not <laughs> the cast of Casablanca. One of the all time great lineup. Some of the best chemistry between characters of any film. Um, you know, I feel like John Garfield's character is too much of a loner and alone in his own mind. Mm-hmm. You know, you called him a family man and I don't, I wouldn't go so far to say this is a noir. Uh, he's not a rebel out there on his own, but he is drifting away from being a family man, pun intended, by the way. Sure, sure. <laughs> Very good one. He, I approve. I approve. He's, he's drifting away from being a family man. And I don't necessarily also feel that he's trying to do the right thing. I feel like he's a good man that's trying to do the wrong thing. Mm. Um, 
for a lot of the, you know, we definitely see him being pulled farther and farther in the direction of getting more and more involved with crime and more dangerous crime. And, you know, I guess that's, I'm seeing different little, little bit, his character reading his character a little bit of a different way. Uh, so I like this movie a lot. It is no Casablanca, but it is an excellent film with, you know, complex characters with a complex character that, and I think the, the comparison to breaking bad, it's like breaking bad before breaking bad. And in fact, it has breaking in the title. No surprise. Uh, he reaches his breaking point. I think it has a lot of the Hemingway elements. I like the, you know, strong silent man, uh, the man that's like being kind of being attacked by, uh, I think they downplayed it in the movie, but I imagine that it's upplayed in the book by uh, weaker men and women. Mm. Uh, like the women, you know, he's being pulled by these two women and they're kind of representing the two directions. Uh, I I liked it quite a bit. I would say I would give it probably three and a half stars and call it good. But uh, Dave, I can't follow you to comparing it, comparing this cast with, with Casablanca. Well, I do think that if you track the cast of Casablanca, they just don't appear in as many ca- classic films. I mean, yeah, Bogey appears in a lot of classic films, and and so does uh, Peter Lorre and uh, Ingrid Bergman. Yeah, I'm not, but I'm not doing resume comparisons. <laughs> I'm saying that the chemistry in the depiction of the characters in Casablanca is classic and rarely surpassed. And yeah, but I, this but movie you know, is is good. Yeah, I mean, I guess my I guess my point is this: there's a couple different ways to watch movies, and I think particularly when you're watching older movies. Um, when you're watching older movies, you often uh, recognize characters that you've seen elsewhere. You recognize actors that you've seen elsewhere and actors that have come to embody certain things mm-hmm. uh, in cinema. Actors that always played the old man, actors that always played the heavy um, or the, 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 the mall or the sidekick. And I think that, you know, you know, I mean, there's a couple other movies here. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Spartacus. Some of the most recognizable um, actors in Hollywood are in this one movie. Um, and uh, for people that grew up watching classic cinema, particularly catching it on TV uh, as they were growing up, I think that that this is is really a, a rich cast. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't think you have. I don't think Garfield and Patricia O'Neill are are bogey and 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 bergman but oh, no. uh i don't i don't think there are any slouches in this movie this is an, a very well acted movie with a with a very very uh interesting conflict and uh that heads towards a really interesting um you know sort of denouement so yeah i i'm 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 uh i'm a big fan of this film a very very sad dark ending (laughs) i think that's what gets to me maybe that's what makes me elevate it to a degree is just like oh man this is a real bit big downer for yes this yeah certainly selfish guy who you know probably (laughs) clearly got in way over his head to the degree where he's practically on his deathbed uh and then you know what what happens to you know, the, the son at the very end, I'm just like, oh, 
I don't know. I feel I feel like there's an extra emotion, like a, a, pun- a punch in the gut with this movie for me uh, towards the end. That I think I think because when I see something from this era, sometimes I don't expect that level of darkness necessarily. Um, but well, Garfield died two years later, at right? The age of nine. Yeah, I know that's tragic in of itself, of course. And I'm going to talk about another John Garfield performance and film from Curtis later on. Uh, I, I think he's tremendous in this movie, um, giving his character layers as opposed to, yes, I, I, I see exactly where Mike's coming from. You know, he is ultimately selfish <laughs> in, in a lot of ways. And he does seem to be straying from the path of the family man that maybe he hoped he could be consistently. But uh, at the same time, you know, Patricia Neal comes into his life. He starts to think he can be doing more and gain more possibly just because, Hey, he has a boat and he could do things other people can. And he wants to hold on to this, you know, source of income and adventure, <laughs> you know? And I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's what he does for a living is by driving this boat. And, uh, I, I just kind of am in awe of his trajectory and certainly, that internal struggle he's facing with like, well, I could be this loyal, loving husband and father, but I'm so drawn to this other side. You know, I'm so, I'm so drawn to not just the woman that the the femme fatale that's seducing me for, you know, whatever reasons, but it there's, he's gaining power. And I think stories about men, you know, being corrupted by power is certainly, has been done a lot over the years, but it's, 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 I think that this one is actually kind of remarkable in how much you get invested again, like you mentioned, Dave too, with a lot of the side characters or even, you know, I don't, I think, I think, uh, Phyllis Thaxter, who wasn't in a whole lot after this outside of playing uh, Clark Kent's mom in Superman, she's really strong here. She really is like, cause you, she, she could just be, Oh, the nagging wife or whatever. But no, she she wants to be, you know, supportive and, and loving and attentive, and yet at the same time she's frustrated with him too. So I think I think Felix Thaxter is really uh, special in this film as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, she she did have she 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 had her day. I mean, she I think she was in what thirty seconds over Tokyo. Oh right, um, yeah, and uh, she definitely did a lot of TV. Um, and I think that's what's I think that's what's weird is, you know, if you're like me and you're um, you're watching a lot of TV growing up, and then all of a sudden on the late night you catch a movie and you go, "Wow, I've seen that actress in X, Y, and Z," and then you get to discover her in a new way. It's a very rich experience of of uh, of film history, um, and I I, uh, I do think. Um, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I got to meet Patricia Neal hmm. before she died at a screening of um, The Day the Earth Stood Still. I was manning her autograph table. Um, and, of course, by this time, she'd had a stroke. And uh, she had long been, um, you know, parted from uh, Roald Dahl. Uh, she, uh, you know, was a fascinating person. And even at that age, you know, I think by then she was 80 80 years old when I met her or 80, 81 years old. And she, 
you know, she talked actually about all these different directors and people that she worked with. Um, yeah, and what it was everybody. like, yeah. she worked with everybody. And yet there was also that sense in which she really had to fight to survive. And you look at the, you look at the, these actor actresses like her and Betty Davis and Joan Crawford that at least managed to survive to a large degree and continue working. Um, and, but then you look at people like, um, like Phyllis Daxter who should have worked more and should have had more opportunity. Um, I agree. and, uh, just, just weren't given it. Yeah. And I, I do think that the, uh, yeah, the confrontation with the with the with the gangsters at the end is really intense. Uh, I, I I'm I'm assuming Scorsese is a fan. <laughs> I don't know. Like I'm not saying like he took the inspiration for the shootout and Taxi Driver from this movie. Clearly, you know every filmmaker is influenced by so many different things, uh, and you know that that shootout in Taxi Driver is something in of itself, kind of a miracle in how it's executed, but. Uh, I don't know. I just uh, I get I get really caught up in this movie in in a way that yes I definitely get caught up in in, in a really intense way with Casablanca as well. But you know, again, you could sort of pinpoint what's going to happen and maybe the tropes are there. But I just think that they're really well executed and certainly just maybe the writing of Hemingway adds another layer to just the characterization throughout this movie. Um, and again, I get I, I get really invested, and that ending image of this film really hits hard. Uh, just knowing, like, oh, the, the, you know, this this poor Wesley's son is, you know, not going to have a father anymore, and just him being enveloped by the fog or something. I just, I don't know. It's, it's very sorrowful, and certainly just uh, what John Garfield has to go through in this movie. Uh, it's it's a lot. It's a it's a lot to take on, but I don't know. I again, maybe most people wouldn't put this up there with an all-time classic, but I still think in terms of uh Curtiz's career, this is kind of a highlight for me, especially. But I just want more people to see it, damn it. <laughs> especially now that it's on Criterion. I'm just kind of like, "Hey, uh if you haven't seen this, please do." It is. It is interesting. It feels older than a movie from 1950, and maybe that's because the source material is from yeah, the 30s. Right. But it feels pre World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has like the judgment moralizing of the gray man of like a noir movie, even though it's not clearly not noir. But you know, a lot of the noirs end with um, like when I'm going to talk about, <laughs> they kind of end with a dramatic uh, battle between the bad guys and the good guys. Uh, of course, interestingly here, this guy is judged and lose. Well, I won't spoil it, but it, it has a very interesting ending. And I think the end, the ending ending is exceptional and, uh, you know, great. And I think that's we've mentioned it many, many times. I think that's above and beyond the rest of this movie uh, and is an extremely haunting image. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And even just the scene of husband and wife. Uh, I mean, he just like there's a sense of like I guess existentialist futility to some degree. What? Of, what like, why do you think? So you know, um, his main sin is pride, right? And it, it's yeah. it's interesting that at the very end of the movie, he's kind of offered a way out 
which right. is, um, you know, but he declines it. And so like he dies of the sin of pride. I, th- I don't think he alt does he ultimately deny it. Cause I think he eventually, my interpretation was he was refusing to do that thing that could possibly save him. Mm. I think in the end though, he wanted her to be by his side and he wanted to move on and <laughs> not do that thing or well, he did do that thing. I think he did do that thing. Like he was carried away in an ambulance uh, is he, what do you think, Dave? No, I, I, my interpretation is very different. Oh, he's, so he's gone at the end of that movie. You know, I mean, we don't have to necessarily well, say we, we can do spoilers, or. but I mean, how else would you interpret that final ending shot? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think the idea He's critically well, wounded, that's for sure. Well, yeah. And the idea either way of the kid being forgotten the things that linger in your mind there i think don't change that much either way um you're still left with a really problematic character who made a lot of bad choices um and probably realized too late um and and and, you know is the movie does the movie exist to judge him i mean i think it's part of the strength of curtis that he doesn't do that yeah. That the movie's bigger than that. Right. Um, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that we can't have our interpretation. You know, that's the whole point, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is that we're all we're all always trying to think about these sorts of issues and think what would what would be the right thing to do for for different characters. Um, you know, one of my favorite, one of my favorite, favorite movies um is a night in the city with Richard Widmark. Oh, that's a good one. And, uh, he plays this, you know, this wannabe uh, uh, fight promoter who finally, after years and years of ripping people off and running the small con, figures out how to do it right and tries to put together a real fight and it proves his undoing. And you watch his past basically, basically close around him. And we talk a lot about that in noir, but there's a very present feeling to what happens to him. Um, and you know, the, the justness or the unjustness of it, uh, it's, uh, you know, to me it's, it's cautionary, um, either way. Yeah. And I do like a good complex cautionary tale. And certainly pride is his sin. And I think it's a don't, cautionary tale. Uh, well, is there, is there judgment or is there not? <laughs> it's not a cautionary tale. If there's no judgment. Um, I would say there is no judgment, but well, there's ways to judge it. In other words, yeah. in other words, there's, you can feel good or bad about his final choices, but mm-hmm. they still same place. And it's still, leaves you with an uncomfortable sort of ambiguity that I think is cautionary. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, pl- I, and I'll, again, I'm not used to the ambiguity sort of taking, you know, f- front and center from this time period. I mean, there's examples, there's clearly examples of that. And you can find those probably in a lot of Hemingway and Curtis films, but, um, Usually there's like a sense of definite resolution. 
and maybe you know we're differing a little bit as to how it ends. That's and and to me that's I think that's a good thing <laughs> in a way. Like maybe you know I I think we should go there because because I am fascinated to continue this to to, to well it's going to be super spoilery but I mean I, I, just... I, I don't mind having that interpretation that he's gone at the end of that movie. I just thought there's like she ple- like she pleads with the coast guard officer that he's going to make it that he's going to pull through but we see him close his eyes right right i would ass- i'm assuming that he could either be going to sleep or he's dead either way you know i mean i my guess is that he probably died but part of me was like wants to be hopeful <laughs> that he's going to survive too. I don't, do you get a definite sense that he's gone at the end of that movie? Like there's just, yeah, I, I get a definite sense. That he's okay. Gone. Okay. Both in the reaction of the coast guard person and her desperation in the final shot. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't see what? like it would be pretty, that final shot's not very, doesn't give me a sense of hope for the future. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, and also the final shot is about, you know, his his dear friend, uh, you know, his partner on the boat being gone for good, for sure. There's no doubt about that. And he's, you know, now the son is an orphan, right? And that's that's a sense of tragedy right there, for sure. Um, Dave, since we're spoiling it, what do you think happens at the end of this movie? I'm just curious because I don't know. I, I could you read it either well, way? Well, you know, I I'm always I, I have to admit, you know, I Mikey talk about influencing me. Uh, oddly enough, I think one of the one of the ways I feel like you've influenced me uh, more is uh, in 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 not necessarily seeing seeing things in one way. I think that there's certainly a strong argument to be made for, um, for interpreting the film this way. I think a lot of films from this period, uh, and in the way that you're assuming the sense. And, and that is, and that is that, um, uh, what probably happened to this guy is he died and whatever. Um, but, I think that the Garfield character is complex enough and there's enough goodness in that character that Curtiz um, is, is allowing you, if you want to go ahead and, you know, imagine what you want to imagine there. Um, I think that, and that's, and that's, you know, whether you think it's 90, 10 or, you know, 80, 20, I, I don't know. Um, but the fact that it's there, um, I think either one of those makes for really interesting conversations. You know, there's a great film by David Cronenberg based on a really good graphic novel called the history of violence mm. and the history of violence ends on a note of real ambiguity. And yet what it, what it, what it does is, is it shows you the awfulness of what someone has done and where their choices have led them. But 
it leaves the future open about what that's going to end up meaning. Right. And I, and I, and I think that, and I think this film, I, you know, this film does that for me. Yeah. I respect filmmakers that make that choice to, I mean, I don't want to make it like this (laughs) black and white, choose your own adventure scenario of like, Ah, right. if you're an optimist, he lives. And if you're a pessimist, he dies. You know, I don't know. That's, that's right. I'm, yeah. I, I'm not saying I 100% know for sure because it isn't shown on the screen. But right. to me, thematically, tonally, image wise, dialogue, body language, all of those point me to the direction I, I went in. Um, but I think there is something to be said about that glimmer of hope that may be in that moment as well. I think that is a um, an important part of that moment as well. Well, certainly our conversations made me want to watch the ending again, <laughs> which is a good sign. Like, I think that's one of the more exciting things about either listening to a podcast or hosting a podcast is that the passion and enthusiasm and the intelligence and insight from the people discussing the film always makes me excited to go back to it time and time again. You know, I mean, even if it's a movie I've seen dozens of times, I feel like somebody will say something that makes me like rethink something or, you know, reframe it in a different way. Well, the interesting thing too here is, you know, we've discussed two very different films Mm -hmm. that also are in some ways very much alike. And I, I think that, Casablanca leaves us with a rather unambiguous sense of hope in the midst of darkness um, that we don't want to necessarily argue with, you know? I mean, I don't imagine after that that Claude Rains and Humphrey Bogart walk off into the airfield straight to the propeller of a a plane that they don't happen to see in time. Um, You know, I... (laughs) I, I I kind of have, you know, some expectations, some some fantasy, if you will, about where where I want to see that that struggle continue and that and those characters m- move. And here, I do think, Mike, you're right. I think that there is a sense definitely of you don't want to wind up where the Garfield character is wound up. oh yeah there isn't the sense of you know um hey things worked out anyway isn't that great you know um for sure so and if he lives he's gonna lose his arm and that's sad (laughs) you know i mean there's just i don't know I, i either scenario is not good but and i also think mike is right in and thematically and certainly with the tone of the film and it sort of would lead up to that. I, I would, I would not necessarily argue that point, you know, I mean, it's, it is pitch black. It's, it's a dark film. And if it led up to that, it would make complete sense. You know, I think, I don't know, maybe the optimist in me is shining through a little bit. <laughs> like, I just like, ah, oh, you know, even, even if he did all these horrible things, I would like to see him, you know, find redemption and certainly be able to be a, you know, go back to the life that he had and knowing that he has support from his wife and family, but it's probably, well, you know, there's probably that, not. There's that, there's that great <laughs> moment at the end of the exorcist where, um, 
where Inspector Kinderman walks up to Chris McNeil as they're leaving the house. And she says, uh, what about, and, and or he says, what about, and he motions to Reagan. And Chris McNeil says, yeah, she doesn't remember a thing. Mm. And you go, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't remember a thing. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, okay. You know, but at the same time, you know, we realize that's not really the point of the story. Um, right. And, and so it really isn't that important. Um, in a lot of ways. And it even has something to say about how we like to deal with tragedy and, and, and everything else. So I, I, this movie is, you know, it's definitely a movie of its time. I think way more than Casablanca. Um, but even like, like Mike said, you know, skewing maybe even a little bit early. And I think that it has, um, I don't know. It, it has, a. Uh, you know, movies like movies from this period can feel a little bit like comfort food. You know, they provide yeah. the requisite thrills and chills. And, you know, we all have movies that we like to go back to over and over and over again, you know, because they lead us through a predictable, you know, sort of like uh, feeling. Um, and. Uh, I just think that there's, you know, there are movies like this, like Casablanca or Sunset Boulevard. um that you watch and you go, wow, every single time. And there are other movies that made you feel like somebody took the time to tell you a worthwhile story. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I, I felt like this was, this, this was probably more in that category. Oh yeah. Thank you. Hemingway. Yeah. <laughs> you did it. No, this is great. Not, Hem- not Hemingway's greatest book. No, 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 no. Of course great. Not. Greatest of course. work but also not Cartesia's just, just good, solid filmmaking that, uh, but you know, that at times transcends its own, its own artifice. Yeah. Well, there's certain, yeah. You mentioned certain films being comfort food. I, I often wonder the, the, <laughs> the movies that we go back to that, uh, cause a, a different experience in us. Would those be considered discomfort food? like your Requiem for a Dream <laughs> or Henry yeah. Portrait of a Serial Killer, like movies that you kind of have a morbid curiosity to go back to and revisit because they made you feel discomfort and horrible in certain ways. Right. <laughs> you know, I just think like, yeah, there are movies like that nowadays where you go, oh, yeah, that the just older put I me get, through the, the ringer. The older I get, the more movies I put on the list of, yeah, not watching that while I'm home alone at the apartment. And, <laughs> you know, not just because it might be scary, but because it just might be really like, what do you do with Re- Requiem for a Dream? I mean, what do you do with that? <laughs> yeah. You watch it once and you go, oh, my God. And then if you make movies, you go, OK, I might watch this for a lot of different reasons. Uh, I might watch this if I'm writing about it. I might, but I, I'm not, this is not a movie I'm probably going to watch all the time. Mm-mm. And I think everybody has a different list of those. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that could be its own podcast really of like just those movies that are one timers, but at the same time you kind of want to go back. At the, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. That's not always true for something like irreversible, but <laughs> I mean, I'm right. sure there are people who will go back and watch it a second time, but I just, 
you know, the ex- that's a one-timer of experience for me. Like, I can't put myself through that again. But I right. see the artistic merit of it being, you know, uh, widely available and accessible for people to see. So we can sort of um, transition really quickly here into a couple of other Michael Curtiz films we want to avidly recommend that people see. And I'm, I'm game either way for both of you. If you want to just bring up a title for, for uh, say that again. Oh, just um, a Michael Curtiz film that you think is uh, noteworthy uh, that, you know, people should seek out. I mean, obviously he has a insane filmography to where there could, you mentioned five already, Dave, (laughs) I think uh, early on at the top of the show, but um, if you want to reiterate those or any others that you just think people should, um, you know, make an effort to find and watch in the near future. I think that if you if you get Doctor X and Mystery of the Wax Museum, great, um, both two great. of the greatest pre-code horror movies of all time, and absolutely breathtakingly grotesque, just wonderful films, and uh, and really really um, ahead of their time. The look of those films are, I mean, I think it was like what the the three strip Technicolor it's like just the way it's it looks is really like this i don't know vibrant pastel green in some in some scenes it's got like this yeah. wa- waxy quality to it that's kind of a makes it really unique a really a really kind of unnerving experience for both of those movies and yeah i uh, i get caught up in them As, you know dr x is whew, whew, good well, stuff and Humphrey Bogart starred in the return of dr x Ah. Um, which was almost going to be his swan song. I think Uh, he was thinking about getting out of acting before he finally got discovered in the petrified forest. Mm. Um, Hmm. Well, 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 yeah, I guess I have some, Uh, you know, I have two two that I have seen of his that I think are notable. (laughs) I don't know. Probably seen more than that. And I didn't know it was him, but um, all right. We were talking about comfort food. We were talking about, uh, classic actors. Um, one movie that I think you should watch, and this is just a fun movie, uh, and that's the original 1930. Well, I don't know if there might have been another remake, but the the 1937 Michael Curtiz Kid Galahad, not the Elvis one. This is a movie that is about a man who's good with his fists. Mm. <laughs> uh, it's a classic like 30s uh boxing movie it's it's directed by michael curtis as we know it's got edward g robinson betty yes. davis humphrey bogart uh it's pretty much like the most 30s of all 30s movies ever made um so i recommend that one but quickly segueing into like a little more wild card um pick by the way the the original kid galahad was directed by michael Curtiz and just like casablanca produced partially by halby wallace and another halby wallace produced movie um is an elvis movie and it is directed by michael Curtiz. and it is my second recommendation and that is elvis's first and possibly only arguably good movie oh um, creole yes oh man uh, you know, my mom passed away. She's a huge recently and she's a huge Elvis fan. And mm-hmm. I couldn't suggest a Michael Curtiz movie. And this is a movie from uh, 1958. And Elvis was everything then. 
he was all of the hotness and uh, who knows how much he got paid here. Probably not very much because it was the fifties, but Michael, this, this is one of those ones where, you know, it's like Michael Curtiz, what did you do in this movie? You're the CEO of the movie as we kind of talked, uh, but it is a decent watchable movie with Elvis and you can almost see Elvis trying and you can see the studio trying to make a good movie with Elvis. And it feels like a movie that's older than it is as well. Because Michael Curtiz was starting to get up there in 1958. It kind of feels like a 1930s movie or a 1940s movie, more a 1930s movie. Um, and it's a depiction of like the rogue. But it kind of meshed really well with Elvis. And it's got the uh, tie-in with um, how Wall is producing it. Uh, I think you should watch it. I think you should take a spin on on King Kroll and also Kid Galahad, a special 1930s fun night movie. Fun fact, Elvis Presley was originally supposed to play the John Voight part in Midnight Cowboy. Can you imagine no if that would have happened? Can you imagine the career? Was He was dead, though, right? What? what? <laughs> no, I swear. When did Midnight I, I Cowboy come out? I think even Sergio said that. <laughs> Midnight Cowboy came out in 69? Wow. You know, it's hard to imagine. Elvis lived like another decade. It's hard to think that. Oh, yeah. It's wild. Elvis, that that era Elvis being that fit. Mm. He He probably would have had to have lost some weight for the role. Just like I think he had to for King Creole and shave his sideburns. You You know, know, there's another. The 68 comeback special. He was in pretty good shape. Hmm. That's true. There, there's another uh, there's another Michael Curtiz connection with uh, with um, Kid Creel, and that is that Carolyn Jones is in that film. Carolyn Jones, of course, probably best known for playing Morticia on The Addams Family, ah. but she played um, in the movie The House of Wax. And she's one of the victims of the uh, of Vincent Price in the House of Wax, which is a remake of Mystery of the Wax Museum. Well, I'll be a monkey's uncle. Oh, there you go. It's all connected. All of it. And of course, we were all excited to see Paris Hilton die in the remake of House of Wax, right? Because that was you know what? <laughs> that okay. That is a movie that is that deserves more respect. It's fun. It's inventively gruesome. It Paris, is. And Paris is very good in it and is killed in spectacular fashion. Oh, absolutely. So, and it's, and it's just a great movie. It's very well, well uh, put together um, and a great and great looking and a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. You could do that in Scott Weinberg's show overhated maybe because it wasn't why loved. And why wasn't it 3D? Why wasn't it in 3D? Oh, that's a fact. When you watch it, you're crying for it to be in 3D. Mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend a new discovery. Like, much like the last time I did a Curse Tease episode, I discovered The Breaking Point, and now I discovered a movie called The Sea Wolf, which is based on Jack London's novel. It is outstanding oh. because of Edward G. Robinson in the lead, practically. He's imposing and tormented and conflicted. And again, another character that yes, you kind of write him off, especially early on as the overbearing villain who wants to take control of his ship and, you know, and everybody on it to the point of, yeah, being a dictator. 
And you also have Ida Lupino and John Garfield together here. Uh, pretty much all taking place on a boat. So there's a sense of claustrophobia throughout. Uh, think, um, oh, I'm trying to think of who else is. Oh, yeah, the, 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 there's a, a writer played by Alexander Knox, who's basically pulled aboard this vessel and is, is you know, kind of reduced to being a cabin boy just so he can stay on board. And he sort of becomes privy to all these, you know, conflicts going on, but the main one being between Ida Lupino and John Garfield, who are sort of developing some sort of chemistry together for, you know, obvious reasons. They're just drawn towards one another. And the fact that, um, yeah, John Garfield sort of goes out of his way to help her in a lot of different um, scenarios. And it's, but at the same time, you're watching this for Edward G. Robinson being larger than life. It's unforgettable. It's he's brooding and and insecure and just so downright playfully evil. And you're on board for this, no pun intended, on board for this entire experience of um, just a lot of opposing conflicts and, and personalities on, on this aboard this boat. Uh, and who knows what happens to this boat? Does it crash and do crazy things happen as a result of that? Well, you're going to have to track this one down as well. The Sea Wolf. Incredible cinematography. I think that it was nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, I, uh, I, I, again, I think the only thing that keeps it from being a full-blown masterpiece is that Ida Lupino's character is... She starts out as something more interesting with a lot of dimension, but then winds up kind of being nothing more than a love interest which is disappointing giving at like it, it sort of hints at something more early on. But other than that, another close to perfect uh, adaptation of another great novel from Jack London. So everybody please seek out the sea wolf because you got, you got some very memorable scenes and performances in that film. So that's my avid recommendation. Uh, not to mention the pure unadulterated joy of the adventures of Robin hood. Right, Dave? Yep. That's well, that's a in my opinion, the still the best version of Robin Hood. Couldn't agree more. Other and, other than Robin Hood Men in Tights. I disagree. <laughs> Animated Disney all the way. Oh man. Oh well. Doodin doodin forest. Doodin 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 do. And for all you Joan Crawford fans out there, you might want to, you know, cue up a double feature of Mildred Pierce. And Flamingo Road, which I think if you're gonna do if you're gonna do a, a double feature of Joan, you gotta do Mildred Pierce and Trog. I think that would really be the <laughs> the way to go. Uh, but Flamingo Road, you got Sydney Greenstreet being amazing and opposing. You, you know, uh, that's another. Yeah, yeah, that's another stellar. He's in film. Casablanca too, isn't he? Yeah. Yes, and Maltese Falcon. You know, we sit here and we're like, uh, they're, Star they're, Wars. they're all in all the movies that all produced by Willis. Uh, they only had like 200 working actors. <laughs> Star Wars. He was the uh, inspiration for Jabba the Hutt. So, you know, <laughs> I, I like him. Oh, yeah. Well, geez. <laughs> I mean, horrible joke. that was I'm, mean. But again, <laughs> Flamingo Road is almost like his definitive role. I mean, I don't know if everybody would call it that, but I certainly think like. 
in terms of being a complete and total asshole <laughs> in that movie of just like trying to undermine Joan Crawford at every turn. Oh, it's, and it's also a great uh, movie about just the political hierarchy of the time and just like people wanting to rise to power, even if it means, yeah, sacrificing the, the, you know, the, the underprivileged we'll say, but it's, it's no, it's a really good, interesting, complex, uh, melodrama or it's, well, I guess it's partially a noir as well. So, which shouldn't surprise you given that it's Curtis and, um, I just, yeah, again, another, I'm really glad we had this conversation because it just sort of reinforces his, you know, uh, range and talent and the fact that I, I wasn't like, I was looking forward to seeing more in, there's still going to be more movies of his to come that I will catch up with over the years just because pretty much everything I've seen, I would more or less give a thumbs up. Maybe it's because I've chosen <laughs> ones that have been revered over the years, but still, uh, there's a lot to choose from people. And, you know, I think, uh, I think Sergio made some recommendations as well in, in that first episode, if you want more, but, um, gosh, thanks. Thanks so much, Dave and Mike. Yeah. Wow. Thanks for having us. I know. I'm so glad I got you both for this episode. Wow, what a treat. You should Mike, come on our show. Maybe well, I will. Let's do yeah. that. Yeah, maybe I will. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. We'll figure it out. I think we can. I think we can find something besides the new Kelly Reichardt film. Definitely not up. the new Kelly Reichardt film. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I just... Uh, I see there's a movie called Cow coming out this year. You know, we did First Cow last time. Maybe we need to hmm. do Cow. Maybe. Huh. Well, there's um and then if Mancow does a bi a biopic. <laughs> oh no. We don't want that. that. And then the cow sills, I think, are gonna have a uh a mu um, um a concert video coming out. How about Midnight Cowboy? I think that's a I think that's a uh, a, a, a great sure. one. Moscow on the Hudson as well could be a movie that we would do police Academy mission to Moscow, Moscow. Yes. Yeah. Or, um, um, another cow movie. <laughs> Is there a movie title with the word coward? I would think so. Maybe. I don't know. I was trying to think of more, but you yeah. know, it's getting late. My brain stops working at about this time anyway. Yep. So, Oh, I'm in must get snack mode. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, let's, let's run down the places that people can find you and hear your show, you know, plug in. Let's do some plug in. Let's plug do in. it. Plug in. Yeah. Mike, where can, where can we find you? Uh, well, Mark. if you want to listen to mind frames, uh, you can find us wherever great podcasts are found. Google play store, Spotify, Apple, iTunes, whatever it's called now. And of course on the now playing network, never heard of it. We're also at mindframesfilm.com. And on Facebook at uh, mindframesfilm, we have the pink logo. That's right. Think pink. Amen to that. Think pink. All others stink. What are you up to, Dave? These days? Yeah. I'm, what's going on? I'm finishing my thesis to get my master's in theological studies. It's on uh, information and how it took over 
the church in the 1970s and led to satanic panic. Oh. I'm also working on a one-man show called um, Confessions of a Creature Feature Preacher and continuing to write reviews for ScreenAnarchy.com. I'll have a review on the menu up this weekend. Mm. Mike, I don't know if you should have reservations about the menu. I think it's I wonder how, how, <laughs> how many movies, how many movies about murder and and uh, high art cooking are there going to be this year? Mm. Lux Gourmet, the menu. Oh, I don't um, mind that. I don't mind that, especially no, when I, I'm 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 happy to watch the one more. The feet die. Um. Well, actually, there's been the, you know a lot of movies about kind of rich versus poor. Oh, I'll say. Um, ready, ready or not. Uh, um. Uh, the platform uh, was another really good one. Um, I think this film fits well within that. I, I do think that I kind of call this the soup course uh, of those <laughs> kinds of movies. It's a good lead in. It's got some complexity, but it's fairly content just to be really, really fun. And I think it does a good job. And clearly influenced a little bit by Bunyel. You know, exterminating angel quality, a discrete charm of the bourgeoisie. Especially, oh, yeah. yeah I, I, and those are two of my favorite movies. So I'm a fan. So there, there's some good stuff to look forward to. I, I do have, I don't want to say reservations. I'm not going to walk in with certain biases or necessarily like, oh, I don't know, but I don't know about the whale as much as I'm looking forward to it. I just don't know. Like, it's one of those things where I don't know if Aronofsky's, because I've read the play, I don't know if Aronofsky's my first go-to pick to adapt this material. But <laughs> that's not to say I'm not curious to see what Aronofsky's going to do with this film. And the acclaim for Brendan Fraser alone uh, has me wanting to support it for that reason. But um, yeah, we'll see. We're going to see that soon. And we're going to see a lot in the months to come. Uh, I, I think Aronofsky, you know, he's, a, he's brilliant at two things. One is depicting madness on screen. Mm -hmm. And the other is crawling into the heads of very beleaguered characters. Sure. Um, and I think that uh, he has, um, he has some of the most um, 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 dark movies I've, I've ever seen, um, you know, Requiem for a dream mother. Mm -hmm. Um, but he also has some of the most hopeful films I've ever seen. Um, the rest and, uh, uh, yeah. The fountain I think is, oh, yeah. is a brilliant film. Um, the wrestler, uh, and this looks like it's kind of in line with those. And I, I I'm, I'm really hope so. Yeah. I hope so. It's, it's a tough sit. It's going to be, I mean, as somebody who's, struggled with binge eating to some degree. I, I, I have, I don't want it to say like, Oh, this movie's going to be a little triggering if I just see him, you know, eating himself to death. But, uh, you know, I think I just have, uh, I don't know. It, it, it could be a one timer. That's just my feeling. I don't, I don't want to say it for sure how, you know, what he's going to do with the ending or not, but yeah, yeah, we'll get to that one as well as so many other films. Uh, to round out award season that uh, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on 
of course, over uh, on the Mindframes podcast. And everybody else, you know, if you're really curious to keep following me for some reason, go to directorsclubpodcast.com. It's a pretty good, pretty good site. Uh, I've managed to archive pretty much everything I've ever been on, <laughs> I, I believe, including guest spots. I created a whole wild archive of links for if you just want to hear me c- continue rambling some more about uh, this art form that I love. Uh, and, and stay tuned because there's going to be the year-end episode coming. And I believe Bill, his next episode for December, and what a Christmas present this will be, he's doing an episode with Sam Deegan on wow. Ken Russell. Oh, man. Oh, man is right. Oh, yeah. I know. That's that's going to be something special, and I think that might be one of our bigger episodes. That's just my prediction. So stay tuned for that, everybody. And, uh, yeah, I'll be seeing you soon. Happy holidays. Stay safe. And uh, much love to my two uh, guests today. They really uh, they really brought their A-game as I knew they would. So Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks All right. much. All right. Later. Later, Tater. Hey. Oh, hello. I bet you all thought the episode was over, right? Uh, Oh, but there's a surprise here. At the end, of course, I realize that uh, the following conversation you are about to hear uh, has little to do with uh, Michael Curtiz per se, but again, in honor of Sergio Mims, once again, this is the, I wouldn't say final tribute here on the show, I'm sure he'll come up quite often throughout the years, but this was a originally a Patreon exclusive, a series I did called Movies You Should See, and I really wanted Sergio to contribute uh, a lot of episodes. But he did want to bring up Tony Richardson's Charge of the Light Brigade. And, of course, as I mentioned during this episode that you just heard, Michael Curtiz was responsible for the 1936 version, which was pretty good-ish. Um, certainly a uh, battle scene late in the film, of course, is quite memorable. Uh, It's unfortunate what happened to all the many horses. Bring on the empty horses, as he said during the making of the film. But uh, I I wanted to at least have Sergio have the final say, but also impart um, some wisdom and knowledge about the remake of The Charge of the Light Brigade here at the end of this episode, even though, once again, very little is said about the Michael Curtiz version and the emphasis is on the Tony Richardson one. But, hey, it's my show. I wanted Sergio to contribute one last time. And certainly, this was available on Patreon, but now is included here as kind of a bonus outro, if you will. Uh, but please stick around. I'm sure you're going to love to hear Sergio. It's always a joy. And uh, as you all know, how much he means to me and how much he's meant to everybody in the Chicago film critic community, uh, this is the right way to uh, end my run of official episodes here in 2022. 
I will see you in early January for the favorite films of 2022 episode, which of course will feature Bill and Brad. And maybe eh, you might hear from Patrick. We'll see. We'll see what happens. But stay tuned, everybody, for um, Sergio Mims here talking Charge and Light Brigade. everyone and welcome to movies you should see a bonus patreon podcast where a guest comes on with a recommendation of possibly something obscure or something that they're passionate about and they want you to see it as well today's returning guest was just on for the john sturgis episode and has selected the 1968 tony richardson film the charge of the light brigade welcome back sergio good to have you back on well thank you i um Actually, this is kind of difficult. Um, there's so many obscure movies. <laughs> so millions <laughs> of obscure movies. And, um, you know, what film to pick, you know. And it had to be a film, of course, that people would be able to see. Okay. Yeah, I saw this on uh, Amazon, but it was standard definition. So it wasn't the best transfer. I'm assuming there's got to be a better version out there. Well, I'll get into that towards the end. There, there, there are, there is a, there is a DVD which is not great. There are two. Well, I'll, I'll get into that towards the end. Towards the end. Um, but I, I was racking my brains on what to talk about, and um, I don't know what came to me, but I decided to talk about Tony Richardson's. Uh, the Charge of the Light Brigade, which I think is a really good and really fascinating film. A correction, oh, something <laughs> to make clear. Uh, I am talking about Tony Richardson's 1968 movie, not the 1936 Michael Curtiz film. Yeah, that with, didn't get the best reviews when I was doing some research here, so I didn't, you know, watch it to compare the two versions. Right. The the um, the Michael Curtiz version of complete fiction is hell of an entertaining movie. Oh, OK. Well, entertaining as hell. Uh, but it's total fiction. Uh, the uh, Tony Richardson film uh, is very much close to fact. Still, there's some things he changes, but it's, it's pretty it's actually in some places very, very accurate to what happened. Hmm. Now, uh, let me give people a little and, and there's a reason why this film, Tony Richardson's film, did not get great reviews when it came out. It's been rediscovered in the last decade. Um, but to give a little bit of background, uh, this movie is set during the Crimean War. And essentially, it was a war between Russia and Britain over control of Turkey. Right. During the 1850s. Now, I really don't have to go into detail about it because one of the great things about this movie is that it gives you a lot of exposition and background about the war and what happened in these wonderful animated sequences. <laughs> yeah. By uh, Richard Williams, Richard I believe. Williams. Mm-hmm. Right. Who, uh, for those of you who don't know, was the animator for um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Right. Okay, and um, the the animated sequences are done purposely in the style of Punch magazine, and I don't think Punch is still around. But Punch was a satirical magazine in Britain that was around for like a century and a half, you know. And they're really wonderful, and they're satiric. Well, the whole film is satiric. Yeah, I, w- I was expecting a little more 
Monty Python or Richard Lester <laughs> a little bit in terms of tone. Well, it's funny you bring that up because the writer of this movie, Charles Wood, wrote Help. Ah, yes. I knew he had I knew he had some Lester connections. Didn't he also do right. uh, How I Won the War, if I'm not mistaken? Right. Yeah. And um, <laughs> as I told uh, uh, one of our mutual friends once about this movie, everybody in this movie is an idiot. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> it gets kind of annoying how idiotic they everybody act. Everybody is a complete idiot. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about this picture is that two years later, MASH came out. Ah. And this film is in the spirit of MASH in that it takes place during a real war, but basically deals with the absurdity and the stupidity of people who run the war. And what this film is based on is a true incident, which today they're still debating. Hmm. And essentially what happened is during this war, during this war, um, when um, uh, Britain was in the, in the Crimea, because it's part of Russia, they were fighting the Russian troops. And, uh, well, no, let me take that back. They were in Turkey. That's right. They were in Turkey fighting the Russian troops. And they were in this place called Baraklava. Right. Okay. okay. And Baraklava, this place, it separates into two valleys. Okay. And the light brigade... Uh, which is a, consists of about 600 men, they were assigned to go down this one valley. What had happened was that the Turkish army had abandoned their guns, their mm-hmm. cannons, artillery, and the Rus- some Russian troops were taking them. So they were ordered, go down to that valley and get those guns before they're all gone. Somehow they went down the wrong valley. Oops. <laughs> and that valley had half the Russian army. Yep. And they were decimated. Now, what Britain did, this movie doesn't go into, but what Britain did, this was a, a total military disaster for the English. So what the English did and the media did was very, very smart. They turned the disaster into this great heroic effort. You know, these brave men who faced the Russian army. So, you know, there's a famous poem by Tennyson, mm-hmm. half a league, half a league, half onward for the charge of the light brigade. See, there's music written about them. They became heroic. Okay. But what this movie does is really is exposed to complete idiocy of these people. One of the fascinating things um, about this movie is what this movie shows is that. Um, you know, a lot of these rich men, Lord Lugan, Lord Reagan, uh, Rag- Raglan. Raglan, yeah. They had their own private armies, which is amazing. <sighs> but at that time, they were so rich, they had their own really private armies. They were part of the British Army, but they paid for it. They sure they did. They paid for officers. They paid for the uniforms. Didn't really pay much for training. And he had this whole private army. So when there was a war, they attached themselves to the army, said, okay, you form, go, you have the light brigade, you have this, and this is great scene where there's, you know, they're carving out who's going to get what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was like, uh, Lucan? That is, you know, they complain about cardigan. 
Carnegie, right. And this is one of those films where every British actor who was available for a couple days or a couple weeks was in this movie. So you have Trevor Howard. You have David Hemmings. Uh, Vanessa Redgrave, who at the time was married to Tony Richardson. I'll go. I'll go a little brief with Tony Richardson. Um, you had um, uh, Harry Andrews, uh, Sir John Gielgud. You had a lot of British actors. You know, uh, where's Lawrence Olivier? I guess he wasn't available. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say. Um, where's Anthony Hopkins? Not Anthony Hopkins. Was it? No, Richard Attenborough. I guess he wasn't. He wasn't available. Yeah. So. Um, uh, it needs to say this movie got terrible reviews in England when it came out. It kind of really hurt Richardson's career because Richardson started out in the British theater and then he went into filmmaking and he did what they called the ki- the British kitchen sink films, mm. you know, about movies about working class life in England, like um, Saturday Night, Sunday Morning, A Taste of Honey, The Entertainer with um, uh, Lawrence Olivier, which I really would check out, where he plays a broken down, watched up music hall entertainer who Ooh. just makes everybody's life miserable. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah, I as yeah, I mentioned he, to you, uh, some British films, especially from this era, are kind of a blind spot, and I mentioned that to... Uh, Keith Gordon, when he wanted to talk a bit about Lindsay Anderson uh, oh, yeah. with Oh Lucky Man, and I yeah. had never seen a, that before, and I was like, wow, this is kind of a, a crazy mashup of different ideas and things going on. Or, you know, you talk about Lindsay Anderson, of course, If. Yeah, If. That, was, that came out the same year, didn't it? it? Uh, a few years earlier. Oh, okay. A few years earlier. And then a couple years later, he made uh, Britannia Hospital. Uh, which is a really scathing look at the national health, the British system, mm. which in one scene almost turns into a student Gordon movie. Oh, you boy. Watch. You got to see. I'm going to tell you what happened. Okay, I'm going to have to see that. Wow. <laughs> you know, uh, Nick Jail is a particular fan of that movie, too. I guess because <laughs> it, we both say it. Just sort of like Stuart Gordon. Um yeah, but 1968 was a pretty special year, you know, because uh, yeah. 2001, oh. Rosemary's Baby, Night of the Living oh, Dead. I should, say, well, I should say what happened to, to Richardson was in 63, he did Tom Jones. Ah, that's the one he's known for the most, I think. Right, and that's the one he's known for the most. And interestingly, he could have made anything, but he wanted to in a different kind of direction. Mm. His very next film, uh, a film he made in America called The Loved One, which you really got to see. Oh, okay. Which, which is um, with Gilgood and Robert Morley and Robert Morris and Jonathan Winters. It's uh, it's a comedy about Hollywood and the uh, funeral business. Wow! Yeah, the only other Richardson film I've seen is his last one, <laughs> Blue Sky. With Blue Sky. Uh, that was yeah. his last one before he actually that film was released after he passed away. Ah, okay, yeah. Je- Jessica Lange was nominated for it. She was great in that. Yeah. Right. And another film he did, Jack Nicholson, The Border. Oh, that's right. I keep hearing about that one keeps coming up, too. Yeah. Check that out. Okay. Yeah. His career really kind of went under wane after um, after Light Brigade, because Light Brigade was really bomb. Mm. And also what he did, the reason why he got bad reviews was that he didn't preview it to critics. Ah. Um, he um, <laughs> that's kind of a death sentence in those days. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and they, re- they didn't really preview films to critics unless it was a really, really big, important movie. Mm-hmm. They didn't do, you know, usually most films, critics had to go to the theater and watch it opening day. And, uh, and then he put down critics saying they were a bunch of snobs or something like that. So the knives were out for him. Yeah. The knives were out for him. But going back to the movie, um, and as I said, he was married to Vanessa Redgrave and they had two daughters. So of course, Natasha, who tragically died, and Jolie. Uh, at the time when the, re- the tide had really turned against the Vietnam War, not just in the United States, but also worldwide. And so what's happening is that you're starting now getting movies that are really attacking this idea of war and patriotism and heroism. And you have to think, six months earlier, John Wayne's The Green Berets came out. Oh, right. (laughs) A big difference. Yeah. Um, Light Brigade didn't do any kind of business. Now, if it had come out two years later, maybe, I think it would have been huge. Because by that time, it had really changed. And by 1970, you had films, like I said, um, MASH had Cash 22. Yeah. Um, You had movies that really attacked the idea of war. Because by that time, people were fed up with war. People were, were like, what are we doing there? I mean, yeah. what's this about? I mean, you go back to what's going on in Afghanistan. You know, that's a 20-year war. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, again, like I think approaching war with a satirical bent, probably <laughs> audiences weren't ready for it that year. But I, I, I certainly think watching it now, the idea of a satire on, 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 on just having hubris and the folly and futility of war and <laughs> poor leadership, all of that really rings true you know and the fact that like oh yeah yeah i can totally buy that this would happen and that they would argue over who should take the blame at the end that sort of thing you know it really yeah. it really works I mean, this may be a bit heavy-handed but that's <laughs> yeah what happens at the very end of this movie at the, the last thing they were all blaming pointing pointing fingers at it it was you it was you it was you it <laughs> yeah. was you it was you you know, I mean, everybody's pointing fingers at every, everybody. Everybody's a moron. Everybody's egotistical. Um, that that scene involving the black bottle. Oh, that's so good. That That's true. That really happened. That really happened. But it didn't happen to Nolan, played mm. by uh, David Henry, played to another guy. It, it, was, it was another officer. But what happened... Um, it's wrote down. It's it's quoted when Nolan goes up to uh, Trevor Howard. No, no, no. I'm sorry, not Trevor Howard. He goes to uh, Harry Andrews, and he said, "You see, my lord, the guns—they're there." You yeah. know, that's verbatim. He actually said that. You know, and they're like, uh, "Okay." And he went down the wrong, wrong. He went down the wrong valley. And when Nolan saw what they were doing and tried to rush up. To stop them, he was he was killed by a mortar shell. Oh, that that moment is really powerful. I wasn't yeah. I wasn't anticipating that the, the manipulation of the sound and just right. what they do with that sequence is pretty shocking and and great. Uh, yeah. yeah, and that's true. That's really true. That's what happened. So they and they, I think they run they ride over his body. They just keep going. They keep going, and they go down the wrong valley. That's why I love that scene because even the Russian troops are looking at him like, <laughs> "What? <laughs> You're coming towards us? Okay, you know." Um, 
But they, I mean, they went down to this glorious media described history of being glorious when it was an actual, actual debacle. And of course, yeah. this movie has a lot with the class issues in England. Um, you know, where they, you have these rich lords that have their own private armies, which are basically part of the British army. And then the working poor who are literally dragged out of their homes practically to be part of the army. Mm. They, just, they just drag them out. You look like a good soldier. Come here. And they just grab them, put them in the army. You know, yeah, and they were treated as cattle because they were looked down, they were looked down upon, right? Um, it says a lot about power, who wields power, uh, who gets to blame. No one gets to blame. Um, it deals, with, as I said, the exploitation of the working class. It deals with so many issues in in this film, and it's easy to make. Trevor Howard's character, Raglan, the bad guy, because he's so cartoonish. Yeah, and he's super and, racist and just, ugh, the way, the way he treats Nolan is awful. You know, or the way he treats that woman in the you know. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, I <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's a cartoon, he's a buffoon. Right. And one of the also things about England at the time was that this was coming the golden period of the 60s in England. You know, the 70s were a bad time for it was a bad time in the United States. Mm. It, it, England went through a real decline in the 1970s, a real decline uh, polit- uh, 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 economically, politically. Uh, it seems like there was a strike every week. You know, you had one weak government followed by another, which is why when Thatcher came in in 1980, hmm. you know, even though she was an abomination, they looked at her as a savior. Ah, uh, yes. Because, you know, whatever the government was in and maybe they could change things around. And she she made the rich very rich. And um, it's kind of reflective he, of what Reagan brought to us in the 80s. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the 70s, the 70s were, you know, Jimmy Carter and Reagan. And, I mean, not Reagan. I mean, Nixon. And mm-hmm. and then Reagan comes in and then people that, oh, he's going to say, no, 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 no. No, he's just going to make things worse. <laughs> That's what this film is reflected. It, it's, it's reflected on British culture at the time, British culture of the time. It is um, a condemnation of war. It is a combination of the powers that be, and as I said, the exploitation of the working poor. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's really quite an amazing film. And it's done in a st- satirical way, sometimes very broadly, broadly, sometimes very subtly, but sometimes very broadly. And sometimes maybe the tonal shifts don't exactly smooth themselves out. That's how I felt, you know, at least on the first viewing is that it's a it's a movie that's kind of at war with itself at times in terms of the tone. Uh, I mean, those animation sequences are really great and they kind of showcase like the jingoistic media and their interpretation of the events. Like you said, how they played it, played it out very differently than it actually was. Uh, and I liked I liked the fact that they included those. Like some people can just see that, see that as being shoehorned in there just to provide exposition and everything or whatever. But 
I, th- I thought it complemented the film, and it's essentially a, a blistering satire, but then it becomes a really intense, epic battle in the end, too. Like, that that's completely yeah. messed up. Yeah, it's it's totally messed up. And, um, um, oh, I'll just let make, make a point about it. Um, the tonal shift, I kind of equate it to a stick shift. Mm. You know, I mean, something you're writing and then you got to move the gears and then to another gear. And sometimes it's not smooth. And yeah, um, it, it's I would say I wouldn't say it's perfect. Very, very few films are perfect. But I think the film is so fascinating and I think it's so interesting. And it's a movie that people really don't know. Yeah, it's and kind it's, of an unsung film, really. It is. Yeah, it is very much. As I said before, it has been sort of rediscovered in the last decade. There is a British Blu-ray I would recommend. There is a German Blu-ray, which is really good looking. Oh, really good looking. And that's the one I have. I have the German Blu-ray. Now, when I say now, <laughs> when I say German Blu-ray, yes, it's the titles and I mean the, the the covers in German. It's I should it, it has it has um, an English soundtrack. I mean, you can listen to it in German. You can listen to it in your soundtrack. Okay, and it's it's a really good Blu-ray. It's really good. It's very good. There probably well there are some extras in it. I mean, like background about the director and everything, but it's all in German. Mm. But uh, it has not it's not been released in the United States uh, in Blu-ray. As I said, there is a um, an old MGM Fox. Um, DVD you can still get. I don't. I think it's not anamorphic. You know, I think it's particularly good looking. I used to have that, but I got this German Blu-ray a few years ago. It's it's pretty good. Uh, it's a region B. Oh wait a minute, it could be your. I think it could be an all region. Oh, that would sure. be that would be nice. Uh. Uh, if you will allow me, I can check in a few seconds if this is an all region. Sure, sure. But, no, I, it's funny because okay. I recently had to get, because um, <laughs> I'm going to guest on a podcast uh, next month to talk a bit about uh, both versions of Invaders from Mars. And the only way I can get the Toby Hooper edition was getting, a, I believe it was a German Blu-ray. And really? Yeah, I, th- I want to say it was German. Yeah, I... Um Let's face it. The original, the, the original, is still superior. I, I think Tobu blew it. I think he blew it. Um, it's a mess, but I kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I will tell this to people who are listening. It it's worth the investment to get an all region Blu-ray. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, it is worth the investment. I have so many, you know, region two Blu-rays that um, I really do recommend. Uh, getting one because there's still a lot of Blu-rays that are not available in the United States. And sometimes, some of the titles are ridiculous. I go like, this is not available on Blu-ray United States? Um, well, you do a whole show talking about that with Eric, and it's great. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, we do. And um, a matter of fact, I came across a film the other day which I am surprised is not domestically available in Blu-ray United States. Uh, uh, it is in England, 
but not the United States. And that surprised me. Um, but I'll save that for the next show we do. Um, but it is a, uh, yeah, but it's, please, Phil, everybody check it out. Um, you, you can find it online. I think YouTube has it. Um, if you want to spend the money, you know, I would get, you know, if you want to see really good, I would get the German Blu-ray. Excuse me just a second here. Yeah, I think I need to pick that up because the version I watched on uh, on Amazon, I I do feel was probably just a, like a standard definition, almost like a DVD transfer, which mm-hmm. was which was a little disappointing because <laughs> especially once you get to the battle sequences, I'm like, Ugh, if this was a better transfer, it would be even better. It would be even more effective. I love the God's eye view shot of everyone looking down at the brigade as they begin to charge towards the, oh, towards the Russian. Not. That's a beautiful shot. When they're going down the wrong valley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like they turn and it's just like, yeah, this is, this is a region. This is a region B spirit media label, spirit media label, but this is through MGM spirit media label and the Angriff Der Rechten Brigade. Wow. Impressive. <laughs> yeah. The Angriff Der Rechten Brigade. Achtung. I don't know. I think this could this should be uh, 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 released here in the, in the States. Maybe Kino Lorber and you could do the wonderful commentaries that you do. Well, no, still waiting for it. The younger officer Nolan was in the regiment von Lord Carrigan in the Krimkreit. Zeichen. Cardigan konnte wieder mit Nolan Nacht in seinem Schwachter zurecht. Unsedessen Kommando und plötzlich steigt. <laughs> wow. All our German listeners are going to be very happy. Well, that's what happens to listen to a lot of German opera. Ah, ah, okay. <laughs> I don't know if you can, tra- I don't know if you can translate some of the dialogue from this movie into German, like the when he says, all this swish and tit gets me sniffing nose up. <laughs> right, you know. Like, man, this British slang, I don't know. I, I don't yeah, know what it all means, but I like have it. All, have all this wonderful slang. There's one guy, oh, his character actor, his name is Bowles, and he, he pops in, like, <laughs> I just talked to, I just talked to the Admiral. They said they're going, to, they're going overseas. <laughs> he just pops out and pops in and pops out and pops in every day. And he's always says something very stupid. And once again, it's, it's very much attack on the ruling class. Yeah. Yeah. Of Britain at the time. Well, and not only of that time, but during that time when this movie was made, and if you can say even today, they're, they're pompous asses um, who don't care about anything else. You can make the association with even today. Oh, no it's, kidding. It doesn't film I just wanted to talk about. Like I said, you talk talk about something obscure, there's an obscure picture. Yeah. Uh, no, it makes me want to check out more of uh, Richardson's work. I know his the original screenwriter screenwriter for this, John Osborne, they were they were both anti establishment figures. You know Yeah, John Osborne was a playwright. I think yeah, yeah I think he wrote The Entertainer. He wrote The Entertainer. Ah, okay. If I'm correct. I really do recommend a loved one. Okay. Check out the loved one. It's on Warner Archive, Blu-ray, or Standard. 
Oh, great. I'm sure uh, the library has that. It, cool. It's, it's a, it's a nut house movie, um, uh, photographed by Haskell Rexler. <gasps> Ooh, you know, that's another incentive uh, right there. An, another one of the great joys in my life was I met Haskell Wexler about maybe a year or two before he passed. Mm. I saw him and we just had a wonderful, he was so wonderful, wonderful conversation. I talked about Mate One, I talked about um, the loved one, which he produced as well. Um, and uh, Medium Cool. Oh, God. That's, yeah, that's was, fantastic. He was, so, he was so great, so wonderful. And uh, he was surprised somebody I rec- he was recognized I recognized him, you know. Are, are you Haskell Wexler? He goes, I am. And, he, <laughs> and at the time he was like 88, 89. And one of the great, great cinematographers of oh, all time. Yeah, without a doubt. That's a whole other podcast you can do too. Is like follow the work of cinematographers because <laughs> they do such incredible things uh in so many films like like uh yeah me- medium cool was something that kind of blew me away and uh was also the well i actually saw it after i saw jackie brown because i'm like who is this robert forrester guy i need to, i need to catch up on, oh, on his work oh. <laughs> first thing you see robert forrester whoa <laughs> yeah well that's the thing too is i remember uh nick's review of jackie brown and uh, Roy was like, who is this Robert Forrester guy? And Nick was like, oh, my God, Robert Forrester. He was in this. He was in that. He was an alligator. <laughs> the alligator, right. <laughs> yeah, no, he's that's a, how I saw Medium Cool George, back then. He's in a George Cooper film. Uh, uh, Justine, which is not great. Mm. Set in the Middle East. And he's got a big black mustache. You know, I am Adam. You know, so Robert Forrester. So, you know, hey, and then, of course, there's also um, uh, Delta Force. Oh, gosh. Yeah, Delta Force. (laughs) I forgot all about that with Lee Marvin, too. (laughs) Lee Marvin's last movie. Wow. And Chuck Norris gets top billing over him. Uh. (laughs) Chuck Norris gets top billing over an Academy Award winning Hollywood legend. Hey, it was the 80s, man. The the mid to late 80s. Missing in action. Good God. Yeah. <laughs> Invasion USA. Oh. Hey, hey, don't not Invasion USA. <laughs> it's, love for Invasion USA. It's a guilty pleasure. It's like, it's kind of like how I feel about First Blood Part 2, where I'm like, I know it's not a great movie, <laughs> but I'm entertained by it. I mean, I love Delta Force, like no, and I love Invasion USA. Oh. <laughs> well, now I want to have a Chuck Norris double feature. Thanks. <laughs> well, thanks again, as always, uh, Sergio, yeah, for the great fun. recommendation. We'll definitely do this again in the future. And of course, I want you back on next year for another director. I know we talked about Robert Wise, but I realize we haven't even done David Lean yet. And I, I'm like, yeah, then Lean. Oh, that's I'm, I'm like. I think I want to do him more because, uh, man, do I love Brief Encounter. And I, you don't, right? Am I, am I mistaken? I like Brief Encounter. I like Brief Encounter. The movie, which nobody really knows about, I should really recommend is Madeline. Ah, I haven't seen that one. Okay. It's terrific. It's a murder mystery. Mm. Set, once again, set in the 1850s in Scotland. And it's a terrific movie. 
uh, starring Ann Todd, who was married to Lean at the time. And um, the final line of that movie, I'll never forget. As a matter of fact, it was on, they show it from time to time on Turner Classic Movies. They used to show it, there was a time you used to show it a lot on PBS, Channel 11. And then it disappeared. But t- and the final line is, well, the Madeline, be you guilty or not guilty. Wow. That was the scene. Uh, summertime with Catherine Hepburn. Yep, I need to see that. Re- I, I did see The Passionate Friends, which I really liked. Yeah, which, which is Ann Todd, right. Yeah. Um, Madeline with Catherine Hepburn, which she did in 55. As a matter of fact, that's one of the films I picked for not on Blu-ray. Right, yeah, I remember you mentioning oh. that. So I think, I, w- I, I wouldn't mind doing David Lean for sure. That's a lovely, lovely picture. And then right after that, he went to the big David Lean. After oh, yeah. that, River Kwai and, you know, um, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, which is a terribly misunderstood movie. See, I, that's a good conversation to have then. I think we should do that because I'd be it's curious to hear your take. Because it's very much in sync with, in, in sync with um, Light Brigade. Mm, yeah, 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 yeah. Because no, that's a good point. The movie, you know, it, it, when we go to going back to Light Brigade, the Britain comes in, you know, even Gilgood, poor, sick little turkey. Oh, the <laughs> Right, and Turkey was part was the main part of the Ottoman Empire, which mm-hmm. from the Balkans to the Middle East to North Africa. Okay, it was in decline. It was it, the 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 the, the, um, the the Ottoman Empire was gone after World War One. Right, and all the countries, Britain and France, they all carved it up, you know, and came out with Iraq. And all this stuff. They, they carved it all up for themselves. And what happened was that Britain wanted to get in because they wanted Turkey for themselves. Of course. You know? And you look at Lawrence of Arabia, people say it's a movie about colonialism. No, it's a movie attacking colonialism. It's a, it, how these powers get this very naive guy to convince, to, to join, to get the, all these various Arab tribes to to rise up against Turkey because Turkey was inside of Germany in World War One, knowing that at the end they were going to carve it up. Hmm. That's what the movie's all about. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, I can see that totally. Because he said we need a patsy. Right. We need a guy who can come in and somehow he can convince these Arab tribes to come together, and then we'll carve them up. And that's what they did. Mm. That's why that final scene in the movie is so overwhelmingly powerful. When, you know, uh, Lawrence is leaving and he's covered in dust from the road. Yeah. Everything is cut. Everything is dust. His dreams are dust. That's true. Everything is dust. Because the British came in and they just carved it up, you know. And Lawrence Arabia has my favorite line in any movie. Hmm. Which is Anthony Quinn when um, uh, Peter O'Toole convinces to attack Aqaba because there's going to be all this gold there. And Anthony Quinn says, my mother mated with a scorpion. <laughs> oh my and I, that's the line. Uh. Because what he's saying is that I know who I am. I'm evil. I'm greedy. Yeah. I'm bumbag. That's what he's saying. My mother made it with a scorpion. You got me. Because I'm greedy and venal and selfish. 
My why? Because my mother meets it with a scorpion. That's my absolute favorite line in the movie. That sums it up beautifully. Yeah, and, and I like the line in um, Charge of the Light Brigade where uh, some soldiers are, are are talking as they're getting ready to prepare for battle, and they say, "Let us show that, in the spite of the mistakes and stupidity of those who are set above us, that we can still gain some glory." Yeah, I'm like that. Yeah, that kind of sums up war. <laughs> Yeah. The, the ones in charge are dumb, and let's just hope we can come out of this alive and, you know, with some glory to talk about, you know? And that's, uh, yeah, this movie really, I, I was really impressed with it. Like, for the first hour or so, I was like, all right, I, I'm, I'm, I'm slowly getting into it, but it's, it's a little slow, and then suddenly, bam, it really hooked me. Uh, well, a little bit of trivia. It was actually longer Sure, when I can see that. Yeah. It was longer. And what they did, this is so dirty. What they did, do you know the actor Lawrence Harvey? I should. Lawrence I... Harvey's kind of forgotten now. But Lawrence Harvey was a big movie star like in the 50s and 60s. Okay. Um, he was technically, he was Latvian, but he was he had a British accent and he was British. Okay. Um, and Lawrence Harvey originally wanted to make this movie. He brought the rights to the book that this movie is based on, Charge of Light Brigade. And when he found out that Tony Richardson and United Arts are going to make this film, he filed suit. Hmm. So in order to get out of the suit, they said, okay, we'll tell you what. We're going to give you the part of this Polish prince who was the real-life leader of the Heavy Brigade. Because it was Light Brigade, it was a Heavy Brigade. Okay. Okay. They cut all his scenes out of the movie. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, because I'm looking him up and he's like, yeah, uncredited. I'm like, oh, mm, okay. He appears briefly in one scene. If you got to look for him, you know, but they cut all his scenes out. Wow. And all his scenes involving the Light Brigade. And well, you don't really miss it, you know, because of the Light Brigade. But um, he wasn't happy about that, I'm sure. But, um, um, yeah, it was something like 12, 13 minutes longer when it premiered in the UK. But this version, this is the only version that really exists, you know. You know, yeah, there is a fault. The whole romance between Nolan and Vanessa Redgrave doesn't seem to go anywhere. Yeah, that's kind of my my main issue for, you know, before we get into battle with everything, I was like, yeah, it's, it's almost like when we talked about Eagle is Landed and the romance between uh, Sutherland and Jenny Gutter. Like, I really don't care as much about this. <laughs> Let's just get to the action, more or less. I, I have to believe there was more there to cut it out. Yeah, that's, that's what it felt like. Yeah. I but no, everything it. else about it really worked. There's great telephoto lens and forced perspective and just this incredible rapid editing at times during the battle sequences that... Yeah, uh, it's confusion. It's total confusion, which right. is supposed... It's total confusion. And at the end... You know, when they come back and they're they're decimated, you know, mm-hmm. and um, the final image is that of looks like half a horse. Oh, yeah. And it, yeah, it goes to like the animation, then the closing credits. Wow. Right. That's a brutal it's final just, shot. Everything has been destroyed. Everything has been, you know, um, is dust is put is as it's. Has been a joke, and um, what's the last? Of course, people start pointing the finger of everybody else, as we say. Yeah, it, it may be a bit heavy-handed when they're, you know, trying to blame, you know, 
But that's the point. Is that I'm not responsible for this. You know, you know, you told me to go down that alley. I. <laughs> yep, that made me laugh because I'm like that. I have no doubt that happens in any right. war. So. And then, like I said, to this day, there's still there's still no real consensus on what happened. Why did he go down that alley? There is it seemed no like it was a misinterpretation of orders. That's what it was. It was a misinterpretation. Yeah, you know, um, and it is true that Nolan didn't give the orders. The written orders to um, Raglan. He he told him go down this alley and 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 a valley. And he he said that. I mean, the testimony is there. He said, "The guns are there, my lord. Attack mm-hmm. now. The guns are there." You know. And so, okay, all right. <laughs> yeah. And then we see what happens to him, and I'm like, ah. Oh. Right. So when you write, when you have that bird's eye view of the troops that, you know, and slowly they're turning the wrong way and everybody's like, what are they doing? What? (laughs) Big mistake. Well, I'm looking forward to that and definitely checking out uh, more Richardson films. Like like you said here, I mean, I uh, I certainly won't won't forget the sound of Nolan's dying scream in this uh, film. The three I would recommend: The Entertainer, uh, The Loves One, and yeah, The Border. Okay. Jack yeah. Yeah, I should definitely see that because I I've heard a couple podcasts mention that as being underrated, and I'm like, oh, I, I remember the video art. Of course, it's just a picture of him with those glasses on. Uh, right. Yeah. No, th- this was great. Thanks, Sergio. I really appreciate you also, recommending this film. It's, the Border is. Don't run with a shotgun. <laughs> That's all I'll say. Excellent. Well, don't, thanks. Don't, don't try to sneak up and run, run and sneak up behind somebody with a shotgun. It's not going to go well. <laughs> I wouldn't think so, especially when you're Jack Nicholson. Right. All right. Well, thanks again, Sergio. I really appreciate you coming on and, uh, talking about this very, very cool, interesting film that I'm glad that I've seen, and I hope other people will too. So thanks again. Oh, great. Thank you. I I really love doing this.